Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 406, recorded on Sunday, the 19th of February, 2023. Living, living life and living happy, I'm Bill. Um, in a lots of pain, I'm Joe. Still house hunting, I'm Moss. And I don't know where I am. I'm well, Danielle Foray. <laughs> I was just going to say, uh, and we have a special guest. I guess we didn't prepare as well as we thought we did. Uh, oh, we have well. a special guest on the show today. I can't even tell you how excited I'm, I am to have you on. Uh, welcome to Mintcast, uh, Danielle. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me on. Sorry, I yeah. kind of jumped in there. I was like, I can do an introduction. Jump in wherever yeah. you want. Right on. Yeah, and please do throughout the throughout the rest of the show at any point. Feel free to jump in and correct me. If you don't, somebody else will. Yell at Moss. Um, it's one of our favorite hobbies. Uh, first up in the news, looks like the end for Mycroft. Proton offers drive for everybody. Midnight BSD takes on Hello System. Fedora 38, now with full flat hub access. New transmission. Android 14 preview. Framework has new SSDs. New versions of Chaos, K-A-O-S, K-A-O-S, Chaos, and Parrot. Ardor and Clonezilla have new releases, and System D is the future. In security and privacy, several PyPy packages steal crypto. Then on our wanderings, Joe's back hurts, Moss is underworked, and Bill is not. In our inner section... don't forget Danny. Uh, yeah, and well... Dan- Danny's got some, too. Does she? Awesome. Uh, in our entered section, we have invited Danielle Foray to come and talk about her elementary OS project and other changes. As many of you would be aware, there's been a recent major release, uh, elementary OS 7, codename Horus. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. Uh, first up in the news, looks like the end for Mycroft, and this is from the register. And this no, is... Let me take this one. Okay, go um, ahead. Mycroft AI creator of a Linux-based uh, virtual assistant announced on Friday, February 10th, it would not be able to fulfill rewards for its Mark II Kickstarter campaign. Furthermore, without immediate new investment, the company will be forced to cease development by the end of the month. The company is now at bare bones employee count. Layoffs have reduced the staff down to two developers, one customer service agent, and one attorney. Mycroft AI ended up spending more time than intended on the Mark II hardware, and the move became expensive and detracted from software, which was what the company actually wanted to focus on, said CEO Lewis. But what truly killed the company and product, he claimed, were expenses related to ongoing litigation. In 2020, Mycroft AI was sued for patent infringement from what is labeled a patent troll. The company suing Mycroft AI, Voice Tech Corporation, dropped its litigation, but not before uh, costing the startup deeply to the tune of $1 million. But um, there is also a bit more to the story. I mean, the V2 has been in production since before COVID, them trying to get it out to the public. The problem got to be the not only the litigation that was going on and all the money that it cost them, but at the same time, all of the uh, chip shortages and shortages in general from <clears throat> um, that time frame 
where, you know, nobody could get a chip to do anything. And then also, um, <clears throat> along with that, they had decided to switch to off the shelf parts, um, in order to lower costs. And then those weren't available anymore either. And they lost their entire staff and no longer had actual development going on. So yeah, they, they, I've always had high hopes for Mycroft, but I, I never really thought it was going to end up going anywhere. Yeah, whatever developers they, they still have, uh, they, they've been wasting all their time asking what are beans. Yeah, and the price went from like $90 per Mycroft V2 to 300 and that's that's just untenable. I think it's 399 now. And it might yeah, be 399 now. It's, it's still a lot. It's uh, really rough, but... Um, and everyone had high hopes for it, but spending a million bucks battling a troll that didn't even want to stay in the game just wanted to cost you money. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And, you know, I liked their, their initial offering of, um, build this yourself using a Raspberry Pi and these parts here. And then here's the software and this is how it works. And if they'd have done that for the second version, I, I, I would have enjoyed that too. Or I think they do. Like, have it all open source, and if you can source it all, then you can do it yourself. But I don't know. I'd have to look again. But, yeah, it's a pretty sad story. It does seem like, you know, under $100 is a good price point for, like, those little virtual assistants. Like, I have the little HomePod Mini that I like, and I know people have the Alexa and Google Pucks. And, but once you get up to, like, three and $400, it's really hard to justify that for just a smart speaker. Yeah, I mean, even the one, because I think the Mycroft one actually had like um, um, a screen as well and, and things would pop up there. But even like the, the Facebook one that you can get with a screen or the, I think Lenovo has one that uh, has the smart screen on it. Um, I, I just can't see them costing $300 and, and being worth it. I think even um, Amazon and the likes of which are having a little bit of problem monetizing the entire concept, uh, just them alone. So if something like Mycroft comes along with a viable product, the only people that are going to spend that kind of money are going to be, you know, the the enthusiasts and the the uh, open source type people. Yeah, Amazon just cut the price of their Lady Tube to seventy nine dollars. So yeah, and and if they're if they can't get it right, then it's going to be real tough to for anybody else to break into the market. Okay, moving on. Uh, use Proton Drive with any email address. This is from Tech Radar. Proton Drive has been particularly successful since its launch in September last year registering over 1 million files uploaded per day in less than two months. Now in a continuous effort to secure the online lives of more and more people, new Proton Drive users can sign up using any other third-party emails as a username. Prior to this, a Proton account was needed to access its file storage service. However, this created a barrier for those looking to only secure their sensitive documents instead. The provider believes that at such a move will help Internet users, quote, to gradually reduce their exposure to big tech's surveillance infrastructure, end quote, one step at a time. We know who they're aiming at, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I have not looked at this. I do have, not sure how I feel because I set up a Proton drive for the other Linux OTC and I paid extra for the extra storage, and I haven't used it yet, but I paid extra for it, and now this. 
I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I well, I've had the free drive since it was, it was in beta, and I How use it a little, but I haven't drive? really. What's that, Joe? How much do they offer on the free drive? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> Darn you with your good questions. Well, I will just have to look it up. Yeah, I'm. It's a good alternative uh, for cloud storage without relying on hyperscalers or uh, we're waiting on Moss. Mm-hmm. Audio engineer, cut this part out. Mm-hmm. No, leave it I'm not finding it, but I think you get one gig for free. Yeah, I don't know. It's not much. It used to be everybody offered either 5 or 15. Yeah. Well, I still use Box, even though they never did come up with a Linux client because they offer the most free space. Yeah, so... It is is one one gig. Yeah, Mark uh, Respawn in the the comments said it's one gigabyte, one free email address, and 150 messages a day. Is that right? 150 messages a day? Meaning that's all Mm. the email you can get? I don't know. I might be all. <laughs> I ne- I've never heard. That's the first I've heard that. What? Well, we have a paid mail account, messages? but not an unlimited. Right. <laughs> they just sit yeah. in the queue until the next day, and so if you get three hundred messages, that's you know two days worth of stuff. You right could there. have. You could. Yeah. You, you could have a queue running for like three years. We have the paid mail account, but we don't have uh, anything but free items for the other thing. We do not have an unlimited. Just thinking about the thousands and thousands of emails I get a day at work. I've got like seven email addresses, and they all get <laughs> hundreds on each. Okay. That's when you start using spam filters, Bill. Right. Well, well I mean. It, I, I, no, I have to set up a slew of rules just to know when yeah, important things are coming into my email for work. And it's just, you, you think I'm joking. There's probably like 100, 150 just rules to get different fo- yeah. or different emails to different folders so that I know what's happening just by looking at my folder structure. Right. Yeah. Anyway, moving on midnight BSD coming for people who don't like hello system. This is from Peronix. For those that may have tried the recent Mac OS inspired hello system, uh, not point eight release for that desktop focused free BSD based operating system. If that didn't satisfy your desktop BSD desires, Midnight BSD 3.0 is working its way to release as another alternative. BSD, or Midnight BSD rather, 3.0 is coming out soon as another BSD desktop OS that was previously forked from FreeBSD, but continues pulling in new kernel driver code. Uh, Midnight BSD is one of the few BSD distributions focused on desktop users and trying to make it breezy, make it a breeze carrying out daily desktop tasks. Uh, Midnight BSD 3.0 has been in development to succeed Midnight BSD 2.2, and there have been development snapshots published in recent months. From the recent status update, the 3.0 stable branch is pretty much ready. We may update SQLite 3 yet. The delay in the release has been due to issues with several imports. We're still working on those problems, but one can't ship a desktop OS without a working desktop. That makes sense. Import is the package manager for Midnight BSD. In any event, it looks 
like soon enough, Midnight BSD 3.0 will be out as another easy-to-use desktop BSD option. Thrilling. Yes, don't we love easy-to-use desktop BSD options? <laughs> I'm downloading right now. No, no, that's good news. Uh, from what I understand, and I and I don't use BSD. I've looked at it once or twice over the years, but uh, Midnight BSD tends to be one of the easier choices for having an easy install and get it up and running desktop BSD. It's just not my thing. Is it Danny's turn to read? <laughs> uh, if she would like to, I don't know. Sure. Um, do you want to do I? Fedora 38? <clears throat> okay, give me one second to scroll up here. Mm-mm-mm. I was down in the show notes waiting for the wanderings. Don't worry, we have a wonderful audio editor. I'm so sorry for all the editing that I'm about to put you through. She seems to um, enjoy it. Where is Fedora? Wow, it's way up here, huh? Yeah, we got a Okay, Fedora go. 38. Okay. This story is from OMG Linux. Uh, Fedora 38 offers unfiltered access to Flathub. So full uh, unrestricted access to Flathub is coming soon to Fedora. Uh, the Fedora engineering and a steering committee have okayed the proposal to provide users with access to an unfiltered Flathub in the next release. Uh, since Fedora 35, released back in 2021, you're able to enable access to Flathub as part of GNOME initial setup that runs after first login, as well as from the software repositories panel in GNOME software. But the problem is that this doesn't enable access to the full version of Flathub, which is what most people expect when they enable those options. So without con further configuration, uh, Fedora would only permit access to a filtered and significantly smaller set of software from Flathub. And this is mainly because of um, some software's complicated distribution um, through Flathub because it's proprietary, unofficial, or subject to stricter licensing regulations. So to get unfettered access, to get unfettered access to the full range of 2,000 plus apps currently available on Flathub, you have to manually set up Flathub from the command line or by downloading the Flatpak repo file. And enabling um, proper full Flathub is one of the first things that a lot of people do after they install Fedora. But thankfully, that won't be necessary anymore in Fedora 38. When enabling Flathub during setup or via GNOME software, the distro now gives you full access to the whole Flathub and not just the heavily redacted filtered version. Uh, there will still be a priority. Apps will default to fetching the version from the Fedora Flatpak repo first, then the Fedora RPM repo, and then finally Flathub. Um, this won't affect anyone too much as most of the apps on Flathub are not also in the Fedora repo um, or the uh, Fedora Flatpak repo. Let me read that again. Um, there will still be a priority. Apps will default to fetching the version from the Fedora Flatpak repo first, then the Fedora RPM repo, and finally from Flathub. But this shouldn't affect uh, anyone too much, as most of the apps on Flathub are not in either the Fedora RPM repo or the Fedora Flatpak repo. But the simple yet important change will be reflected in the next major stable release, Fedora 38 Workstation, currently in development and due for release later this year. <clears throat> Maybe we'll have to test out Fedora again, see how things go. Yeah, that Flathub flat thing was really kind of a point of contention for that project. What, how, how it was so restricted? It yeah. Really People need to understand is whenever you have a distribution with a huge 
commercial imperative, that's going to be the thing that that drives the decision making time and right. time again. You know, you need stability with something that's used. Yeah. Well, you also have to make sure that the things you do are within the law. And when you're operating in the United States, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. I do find that that can be really hard sometimes to um, communicate to people is especially because the way that software patent laws and licensing and copyright and everything work in the U.S. is so restricted compared to other countries. It can be like really foreign to think about certain software being illegal to redistribute or use in certain ways. Um, but that's kind of a legal reality that we have here. And, and if you're not careful, you could set yourself up as an attack surface and end up like Mycroft getting stuck in litigation and then your project's over. Right. And, well, have you faced any actual issues like that? I haven't so far. Like, I think we've been really good about following what some of the larger companies are doing and being like a little bit more cautious there. And, and, um, luckily we do have some people in the community that are more knowledgeable about like software licensing issues. So personally, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know all the details. Um, but you know, do our best to keep our noses clean. Yeah. Cause there's nothing more pathetic than somebody taking an open source project court, which, happens but it's just it's just the ultimate bully move you know and i can see why fedora would want to avoid as much of that as possible because it does happen okay transmission 4.0 is released this is from nine to five linux the popular transmission open source free and cross-platform BitTorrent client has been updated today to version 4.0 a major release that introduces numerous new features and performance improvements. Coming more than two and a half years after Transmission 3.0, Transmission 4.0 introduces support for BitTorrent v2 and hybrid torrents, support for IPv6 block lists, and a revamped web client with full mobile support with full screen and dark mode support. Other new features include an option to omit Potentially identifying information like user agent and date created when creating new torrents. The ability to set default trackers that can be used to announce all public torrents and the ability to specify the piece size when creating new torrents. Furthermore, Transmission 4.0 introduces configurable anti-brute force settings, the ability to fetch metadata of stopped magnets, support for changing the progress bar color in the GTK client depending on the torrent state, and an updated details dialog that includes the date a torrent was added and faster rendering of large file lists. <coughs> Transmission 4.0 also starts newly added seeds immediately and verifies pieces on demand rather than using the old method where a full verification was required before seeding can begin. Moreover, there's a new torrent added verify mode setting to force verify added torrents. There are also many under the hood performance improvements to make transmission use less memory and fewer CPU cycles. Also, the RPC API table mode is now used for both transmission QT and transmission web remote control. GUIs, which results in smaller payloads and less bandwidth use. In addition, the entire code base has been migrated from C to C++. The GTK client was ported to GTK4 and GTKMM. The web client was rewritten in modern JavaScript 
The QT client now supports QT6 DHT bootstrapping was greatly improved. And Avatana indicator is now preferred over app indicator. Aontana. The red line underneath makes that a little bit hard. Ayatana. 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 Thank you. Ayatana indicator is now preferred over app indicator. Transmission 4.0 is available for download right now from the official website as a source tarball, but you'll have to manually compile. If that's not your cup of tea, you'll have to wait for the new version to arrive in the stable platform repositories of GNU Linux distribution before updating from Transmission 3.0. And there's a link to install the PPA on Mint and Ubuntu in the show notes. Now, um, I've always kind of defaulted to QBit Torrent over Transmission. Just, I've never really been a fan of it. It was a little too, it, it seemed to lack some of the robustness of some other uh, Torrent downloaders. So, I use them both depending on what I'm, I've got Transmission on here. Um, I've not been able to figure out a way to bind it to a specific IP address or, uh, a specific interface, which is a couple of options that'll keep you out of trouble. If you know what I mean? Uh, like I said, it's, it's lacking that robustness. Yeah. But you you guys are downloading stuff other than Linux distros. Uh, I'm not saying that. Never, 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 never. I wouldn't say that out loud, but there you go. I would never. No, you'll just let okay. other people do it for you and then use their uh, Plex servers. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. You got a problem with that? Nope, none whatsoever. <laughs> okay. That was Android, really good. <laughs> Android oh, yeah. 14 Preview 1 is out. We'll officially ban installation of old apps. From Ars Technica, Android 14. Android 14 is here, or the first preview is at least. Google is kicking off the months-long developer preview process for Android's latest version, which will get a final release in the second half of the year. Even with multiple previews, Google likes to keep the final set of Android features under wraps, at least until its I.O. conference in May, so we can't look at the features here to determine the scope of Android 14. These are just some of the features Google wants developers to have a head start on. The biggest news is that Android 14 will block the installation of old Android apps. As Android changes over the years, new APIs and increased security, privacy, or background processing restrictions could break old apps, but Android's backward compatibility system keeps those old apps running. Apps can declare the newest version of Android they support via a target SDK flag. To prevent old apps from breaking, new features and app restrictions in, say, Android 12 only apply to apps that target Android 12 or above. Older apps will continue to run with the older set of restrictions they're used to. A different setting called Minimum SDK determines if a new app can run on an old Android OS. The system works great for honest developers, but if you're building a piece of malware, it's an easy decision to target a very old version of Android. While you'll get access to fewer features, you'll also be subject to fewer security and privacy restrictions. For the first time, Android 14 will close this malware loophole by simply refusing to install old apps. The cutoff point is generous enough that it shouldn't cause anyone any problems. Any app lower than the 8-year-old Android 6.0 target will be blocked. Google says it picked Android 6 because it's the version that introduced runtime permissions, the allow-slash-deny boxes that pop up asking for things like camera access. 
In addition, quote, some malware apps use a target SDK version of Android 5.1 to avoid being subjected to the runtime permission model introduced in 2015 by Android 6.0, end quote, Google said. Uh, yes, it was Mr. Google himself. Um, users who don't sideload apps probably haven't seen an Android 6.0 app in years. The apps certainly aren't available in the Play Store. The Play Store implemented rolling minimum target SDK levels in 2018, requiring new and updated apps to target an Android version that's a year old or newer. So in 2018, the minimum SDK version the Play Store would accept was Android 8.0. And since it goes up every year, the minimum level today is Android 12. That requirement for new and updating apps means abandonware was initially still visible on the Play Store, but Google started hiding old apps last year, and now any app that hasn't been updated in two years will be hidden from the store. It also sounds like the core Android OS will cull app support every year. 9to5Google discovered this feature when it first hit the Android code base, and there was talk of a progressive ramp-up for the minimum app level in the commit. If you somehow still have an Android 6.0 app on your phone and upgrade to Android 14, the app won't be removed, Google says. If you really still want to install an app that old, an ADB command on uh, an ADB command line flag, ADB install dash dash bypass dash low dash target dash SDK dash block space file name dot APK will bypass the block. That requires a USB cable, a PC, and an installed Android developer SDK kit, software development kit. So Google assumes you know what you're doing if you go down that path. The second most interesting feature is a new nonlinear font scaling idea. Android has had a font scaling feature for a while, but now instead of linearly making everything bigger and blowing up heading text, the feature will scale small text more than big text. If you use the font scaling feature, your problem is probably that some small font is too small to see, so this change makes a lot of sense. Along with this smarter font scaling, Google is bumping up the size limit from 130% to 200%. It's hard to say too much about the remaining features. Documentation is not live, and we only have a vague blog post to work off of. There are many changes involving streamlining background work, with Google saying it wants to be quote, more opinionated about how foreground services should be used, reserving them for only the highest priority user-facing tasks so that Android can improve resource consumption and battery life, end quote. Again, direct from Mr. Google. Android is updating to OpenJDK 17, and while that's still a work in progress, Google said it is, quote, working hard to fully enable Java 17 language features in upcoming developer previews, end quote. Interestingly, the company plans to backport this work to older Android versions via the project Mainline's Android Runtime Module. Google says that, quote, over 600 million devices are enabled to receive the latest Android Runtime ART updates, end quote. ART became an updatable Mainline module in Android, Android 12. We also got a new release timeline. As usual, there will be a monthly release with the easy install beta release starting in April. We will also highlight May as the Google I.O. release, which usually has more in the way of consumer features. This says the final release will be sometime in August or later. Flashable builds, which are not meant for your daily driver, should be available on the Android developer site. Besides the emulator, Google says you'll be able to try this first release on a Pixel 7 Pro, Pixel 7, Pixel 6a, Pixel 6 Pro, Pixel 6, Pixel 5a 5G, Pixel 5, or Pixel 4a 5G. 
update the Pixel 4a 5G is getting the update, not the base model Pixel 4a. The Pixel 4a 5G launched alongside the Pixel 5, months apart from the Pixel 4a. Now, you might think to yourself, well, who on earth is running a phone with Android 6 or below? But man, you'd be surprised how many people are running around with Android 5. 4.4. I mean, KitKat was extremely popular. and, and They still are selling so tablets on Android, yeah. brand new. Yeah. yeah. And so this is going to make some of those people unhappy. Because oh. I, I can name two of them right now that are on four points something or other and they're they're being very uh stubborn about upgrading because they just can't be bothered and well, a lot of your devices that run 4.4 are not going to run 14 i mean they're no. still good devices the hardware is still good they're just eh. not getting those software updates and why 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 throw away a perfectly good working device <laughs> It's kind of a different conversation there. And I mean, it's once again, it's why I really don't get excited about mobile and all of that. I don't, I don't even think about putting something else on my phone, uh, just because it isn't worth the effort for me. It used to be, but it's not really anymore. No, but yeah, good news, bad news. Hmm. Okay, um, there is a lot of news left. Do we want to just leave that in the show notes and let people read it if they want to and move on? We well, never did before. We've got time. Okay. It's Of course, it's up to Danny because her time is more valuable. We're at 32 you. minutes. You're muted. You're muted, Danny. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> I don't mind. I don't have, like, massive plans today, so yeah. whatever works better for the show. All right, let Let's me take do mid-cast. We're here to framework party. now offers Steam Deck sized SSDs just because it can. This is from Ars Technica. Steam Deck and Microsoft Surface owners looking to get more SSD storage than is typically offered and for less money have a new unexpected source framework, the repairable laptop company. Seeing the need for Reputable, ven- reputable vendors of smaller size M.2 drives, the company decided to add one more line item to its typical Western digital drive order. As such, the company has started offering a 2 terabyte M.2 2230 drive for $300 in its U.S. and Canada stores. As of this writing, the drives are sold out, but you can sign up and be notified when they're back in stock. Now, I'm, I'm going to pause reading this right here because this this is actually a big thing. I don't know if anybody here has tried to look for 2230s or 2242s, but they can be rather difficult to get, which drives the price per um, meg up a lot. Yeah, like and, four of each. Yeah, and, and, and the problem also gets to be... The, the, the M key, the B key, and the M plus B key, and, and, and NGFF versus, there's a lot of stuff that goes there. So knowing that something works for a specific device, if that's what you're looking for, is also extremely helpful. Now, Framework founder and CEO Narav Patel describes the move as an interesting opportunity to enable upgrades on another popular consumer electronics product, the Steam Deck. Patel notes that it can be difficult to find legitimate sources for larger capacity drives. The 2 terabyte SN740-2230 models from Western Digital that Framework will offer, 
Patel thanks iFixit's guide to upgrading the Steam Deck and Surface devices and asks Framework fans to let the company know about other ways to help you with hard-to-find upgrades for other products. We'll presume retail price GPUs isn't worth mentioning. As we noted in an article about the widening availability of Teensy SSD drives, these drives aren't cheap, but they still provide large savings over the big OEM vendors' prices. Upgrading the Surface Laptop Go 2 from 128GB SSD to 256 costs between $50 and $100 if you buy from Microsoft or another retailer and higher capacity drives aren't available. Microsoft will charge $300 to upgrade the Surface Pro 9 from 256 to 512GB and $600 to upgrade from 256 to 1TB. The Steam Deck's various price tiers come with other non-storage related benefits, but going from the base model 64GB of slow EMMC storage to 256GB SSD still costs at least $130. Buying from a name like Western Digital via Framework is also likely to be a better bet than purchasing from lesser known vendors on eBay or other marketplaces. While these drives are not framework labeled and thus don't have the company's one-year warranty, there is still a 30-day return policy and a wider number of support options. Framework's warranty language suggests that actual malfunction or failure response will be handled by Western Digital. Now, <clears throat> there are a lot of devices that you don't think of that would use um, either your 2230s or your 2242s like the uh the one gx actually has a slot for um i believe it's a, a 2242 um it would be right there on the inside and then like the dell tablets that i use all of those either well some of them actually use um 2280s but then they also have a secondary slot that can either be used for uh, a SIM card, or you can put another hard drive in there. And those are usually um, either 2230 or 2242. Now, the main drives on the other Dells that I have are always 2242. And yeah, it it's, can be difficult to find ones that uh, match key and match size. So just keep all of that in mind when ordering things. It does seem like a really business-savvy move if they're using these drives in their own devices and they're trying to keep prices down in their devices, trying to find ways to operate at those economies of scale by, by repurposing those drives just for resale is really smart. And that's actually a really good price. I mean, two terabytes for $300 on a 2230, yeah, that, that's kind of great. And you can find adapters to go from 2230 to 2242, so... Bill, why don't you take chaos and I'll take Parrot? Very well. This is from, well, new versions of Chaos Linux and Parrot from 9to5Linux and Parrot blog. Uh, chaos. The development team behind the Arch Linux-inspired yet independently developed and KDE-focused Chaos Linux distribution released today Chaos Linux 2023.02 as the newest ISO snapshot with the latest updates and GNU slash Linux technologies. Powered by the latest and greatest Linux 6.1 LTS kernel series, Chaos Linux 2023.02 is one of the first GNU slash Linux distributions to ship with the <clears throat> just released KDE Plasma 5.27 LTS desktop environment. 
which is accompanied by the latest KDE Gear 22.12.2 and KDE Frameworks 5.103 software suites. This is the second GNU slash Linux distribution, to my knowledge, after KDE Neon to offer a live production-ready ISO image with the latest and greatest KDE Plasma desktop environment. More distributions will offer it in the coming days, but these are currently the first if you want to use KDE Plasma 5.27 LTS right now. As usual, the ISO comes with some of the latest GNU slash Linux technologies, including Network Manager 1.42, OpenSSH 9.2 P1, CLang slash LLVM 15.0.7, BusyBox 1.36.0, GNU PG 2.4.0, OpenZFS 2.1.9, Python 3.10.10, SQLite 3.40.1, Systemd 252.5, IWD 2.3, MPFR 4.2.0, Draycut 0.59, LibTIFF 4.5.0, and many others. No other major changes or improvements appear to have been implemented in this release, which is here only for those who want to deploy Chaos Linux on new machines or wish to reinstall their systems for whatever reason. And I looked at Chaos years ago and thought it was kind of cool. Interesting KDE approach, but it's always exciting to see a new release. Okay, well, we've got a new parrot. What's that? I know nothing about it, so... So there you go. Okay, parrot, what's new in parrot OS 5.2? The Calamaris installer received several important updates to fix common installation issues. The Linux kernel was updated to version 6.0. Several security updates were included to fix important bugs to Firefox, Chromium, sudo, dbus, nginx, LibSSL, OpenJDK, and Xorg. Anonsurf, our popular anonymity tool, now includes better support to Tor bridges. Wireless drivers for several Broadcom and Realtek cards not supported by Debian received a major upgrade to include support for the 6.x Linux kernel, along with VirtualBox and NVIDIA drivers. Pipewire, the popular Pulse Audio alternative, fixed several stability bugs with a new version backported from Debian backports. Other product improvements, the Raspberry Pi images received important updates to improve system performance and fix the audio drivers. The Hack the Box edition received minor graphical updates. There is an easy upgrade to the new version if you're already using 5.1. Parrot's more of a security-based operating system. That's about all I know. (laughs) There's more than I know. Okay, do you guys want me to take the next one? Sure. Okay. Ardur 7.3 open source DAW released with VST3 multibus support searchable preferences from 9to5 Linux. Or <clears throat> from 9to5 Linux. The Ardur 7.3 open source digital audio workstation software arrived February 16th with more new features and a bunch of improvements for all of your music production needs. Coming two months after Ardur 7.2, the Ardur 7.3 release is here to introduce support for VST3 plugins with multiple I.O. buses to allow instrument plugins to have dedicated additional outputs, as well as sample rate 
independence so that audio hardware sample rate and session sample rate no longer have to match. Ardor 7.3 also updates the UI to introduce support for searching items in the global preferences and the session properties dialog. The ability to reverse the polarity of an audio region, working undo redo in the recording page, and the ability to directly use the MIDI tracer on physical MIDI ports. Under the hood, the release supports the AVX 512 x86 instructions to enhance its performance. However, the developers note the fact that the official Linux binaries currently don't include this feature, which will be added in the next release, Ardor 7.4. Other improvements include Ardor 7.3, our support for the quick export dialog to sort range markers by time, the ability to check all channel configurations before exporting, tapping tempo with a MIDI keyboard, as well as Grouping of system ports by a common prefix, example by device. When using Pipewire or otherwise having multiple jack clients exposing physical ports, the indices are even less meaningful than otherwise, as different devices could appear in arbitrary order. So also using pretty names for stereo bundles makes the UI less confusing in places where these bundle names are used. For example, the menu when clicking on an I.O. button explained the devs. On top of that, the plugin setup dialog will now limit options to stereo and all. When loading a plugin with more than two outputs, Ardor 7.3 also improves solo handling, monitor control, as well as do not reset fader to Unity on selection function for the fader port 8 control surface. Several bugs were fixed in this release and various language translations were updated. For more details, check out the full release notes. Ardor 7.3 is available for download from the official website as a source tarball that you'll have to manually compile on your GNU Linux distribution. Sounds like some good improvements were made. Uh, one of my sort of long-term goals is to, I, I installed it because I wanted to see how easy it would be to use as an alternative to Audacity and then I tried and failed. It wasn't. <laughs> I, I ended up sucking my thumb. I'm not going to lie. Um, but from what I understand, it is what our audio engineer uses to edit these shows. She seems to like it better. So uh, that's about all the kudos I can give for it. It does seem to be a bit more robust. and uh, But that's... <laughs> That's all anecdotal because I've never been able to create anything with it. So that's on my list of things to learn how to do in the near future. Because audacity irritates me sometimes. I don't mind telling you. Just uh, And I don't know if it's because only a limited amount of development goes into the Linux side or or what it is. Because most of the problems that I complain about are cosmetic or uh things of that nature i don't have problems with the actual use of it or the the end product that it makes but uh our doer seems to be a bit higher on the food chain i think uh who wants to take the clonezilla one you want me to do that you can do that or danny i think i'm up for the next one I'll, i can go ahead and tackle it um Clonezilla Live 3.0.3 .3 
disk cloning tool adds support for multiple Lux devices. That's Linux something. What does that stand for? I can't remember. Anyway, um, uh, Linux 6.1 LTS. This is from 9 to 5 Linux. Clonezilla Live Developer uh, Stephen Chow, I apologize, announced the release of Clonezilla Live 3.0.3 February 16th as the third maintenance update in the latest Clonezilla Live 3.0 series of this open source free and powerful partition and disk cloning slash imaging live ISO distribution based on the Debian SID repositories. Clonezilla 3.0.3 comes more than three months after Clonezilla uh, 3.0.2 and bumps Linux kernel from the new, the now deprecated Linux 3 or Linux 6.0 to the long-term supported Linux 6.1 LTS. Okay, real quick. Uh, Lux is actually encryption. Right. Yeah. Uh, what would, what did you say, Moss? I posted, was, I, I posted it in, uh, our general. Yeah. Uh, it's Linux unified key setup. So it's the framework by which you would use if you were going to set up an encrypted file system. And that's what most of the time, whenever you're in, in installing a Linux distribution and for, uh, example, anything based on Ubuntu, when you go into the advanced options, it asks you if you want to set up a Lux encrypted set up uh but to read on uh starting with this release clonezilla now uh clonezilla live now supports mkinit cpio in the init ram fs updating mechanism when restoring arch linux systems and derivatives also the new release improves the lux mechanism to support multiple lux devices and no longer clone encrypted swap data a new program has been added to Clone Zero, a Clonezilla 3.0.3 called OCS Live Ver, which can be used to show the Clonezilla Live version currently running. Various other programs were updated to their latest versions, such as Memtest 86 Plus 6.0 and Part Clone 0.3.23. Among other changes, Clonezilla now shows the live or the live now shows the swap partition in the save parts dialog menu and adds better mechanism to handle both ways of saving the swap partition, which is by keeping the UUID slash label or dumping by DD adds a uh tac tac power slave option off option in set term to prevent screen blanking in the console adds the TAC J2 option in the restore parts menu and replaces the OCS BT B track program with open tracker. Several bugs were addressed as well in Clonezilla 3.0.3 to improve converting of a disk image to the BT format and to patch the live config package to support the user cryptid parameter. You can download the new release below for all of your partition and disk cloning imaging needs. Clonezilla Live supports a wide range of file systems, including uh, ext2, ext3, ext4, riser fs, xfs, jfs, uh, fat, ntfs, hfs plus, ufs, minix, and vmfs. It also supports lvm2, 
multicast as well as 32-bit and 64-bit architectures for cloning GNU slash Linux, macOS, and Windows systems. My reading gets a little screwed up with all of the red lines underneath everything. Yeah, about the only way to get rid of those is go mark each and every one of them as being ignore all. Yeah. (laughs) Anyhow, anything more to say about that, guys? You know, I've used it uh, at like intermittent times over the years, and it just works. Mm -hmm. I think it clones on the block level, which is helpful. Yeah, I use RescueZilla, which is a fork of it. Yeah. Um, I don't know when these changes are going to make it into RescueZilla, but RescueZilla is basically CloneZilla with a better GUI. Mm. Easier to use, but uh, both get the job done. So you recommend RescueZilla? Yes, and Leo recommended it to me. Okay. So it's got a regular GUI instead of just like a end curses kind of thing like the... Yep. Yeah. Maybe I'll take care of that after the show today. One thing is, uh, it's really useful for is when you've got your system the way you like it, you can just turn that into an ISO with RescueZilla in, in moments. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then uh, when you have to reinstall, you already have all, all the stuff you use installed in that ISO. But then updating can be a problem if it's been too long. It's true. But most... I I haven't had a problem with updating on those. So you could create an ISO from your system, including all of the settings, all of your installed applications and everything. Right. Well, that's that's helpful. So let's move on into pottering territory. Uh, System D253, you're looking at the future of enterprise Linux boot processes from the register. The first System D release of 2023 is here, and it introduces a brand spanking new tool for building unified kernel image files. Fresh versions of System D appear roughly twice a year, apart from release candidates. We reported on the last version, System D252, in November last year. As we said at the time, System D252 brought in support for Agent P's new, more secure Linux boot process. Those two stories have details on of the UKI. UKI boot files and how they work. That, again, would be from the register. The support and tooling for UKI continues to improve, and one of the headline features in version 253 is a tool for building these unified kernel images, which is called UKIFI. As the System D release notes say, a tool, UKIFI tool to build, measure, and sign UKIs has been added. This replaces functionality provided by Draycut-UEFI and extends it. From the new program's manual page, note this command is experimental for now. While it's intended to become a regular component of System D, it might still change in behavior and interface. Like it or not, it seems certainly likely that UKIs will become the standard way to start many enterprise Linux distros, if only because of their support for automatically unlocking drives using full disk encryption by retrieving keys from the machine's integrated TPM2 chips. Three of the last four new laptops that have landed on the Reg FOSS desk came with Windows BitLocker FDE turned on by default. The only one that didn't was Tuxedo Computer's Stellaris Gen 4, a gaming laptop with a multicolor illuminated mechanical keyboard. As a machine intended to run Linux, that's not really a surprise. Many users might never even notice it unless they try to dual boot the computer with a non-Windows OS and find that nothing else can read the disk. 
Never fear, we have described how to turn it off and make such a machine ready to dual boot. There are, of course, lots of other changes, but they should be less visible to most people. There's a new option to limit the amount of memory assigned to the compression pool if you use Z-swap swap area compression. Z-Swap Swap Area Compression, a feature added to Linux for workgroups, a.k.a. kernel 3.11 way back in 2013. We suggested enabling this last year as a way to improve the performance of desktops or laptops with limited RAM, and it can help quite a lot, but the price of reduced swap usage is increased CPU strain and the need for a block of memory for the compressed cache. As described in some kernel patches last year, Zswap is a complicated tool and its interactions on a system running lots of cgroup2 containers is not easy to debug. Tweaks to the systemd OOM killer suggest that this is still causing issues, as it did even back in Fedora 33, which is why Linux Mint 21 disabled it altogether. The systemd boot tool, which is used in Pop! OS and caused us grief, now supports other ways of loading the kernel in the Xensoup hypervisor in the Xen hypervisor and QEMU hypervisor slash emulator, such as from locations other than the UEFI ESP. Handling of several file system issues has been improved. If systemd finds a swap volume with a different page size than the one that the system needs, it will automatically reformat it, and it has better handling of an NRD that isn't a pure RAM disk, such as OverlayFS. There is also direct support for a technology we had not met before, HSSRE, or to give it its full name, Lockheed Martin Hardened Security for Intel Processors. Many won't like it, but expect System D253 to appear in the next version of most mainstream distros. If that thought is too much to bear, there are still a decent selection of distros that don't have it. And that's the news. Good old System D. All right, so moving on to security and privacy. First up, 451PyPy packages, packages install Chrome extensions to steal crypto. The developers call that PyPy. PyPy, okay. Hmm. And this is from Bleeding Computer. Over 450 malicious PyPy Python packages were found installing malicious browser extensions to hijack cryptocurrency transactions made through browser-based crypto wallets and websites this discovery is a continuation of a campaign initially launched in november 2022 which initially started with only 27 malicious pipe packages and now greatly expanding over the past few months these packages are being prompted through a type typo squatting campaign that impersonates popular packages but with slight variations such as an altered or swapped character. The goal is to deceive software developers into downloading these malicious packages instead of the uh, legitimate ones. As Phylum explains in a report published on Friday, in addition to scaling up the campaign, the threat actors now utilize a novel obfuscation method that involves using Chinese ideographs in function and variable names. Some of the popular packages impersonated in the current type 
type of squatting include Bitcoin LB, L, well, Bitcoin LIB, CCXT, Crypto Compare, Crypto Feed, Freak tra- Trade, Selenium, Selena, Viper, WebSockets, Y Finance, Pandas, Matt PLOTI, Matt Plotib, oh, AIO, AIO HTTP, Beautiful Soup, TensorFlow, uh, Selenium, Scrappy, Colorama, SCI Kit Learn, PyTorch, PyGame, and PyInstaller. They the mentioned first- Selenium twice in that article. Yeah. <laughs> Must be important. <clears throat> The threat actors use between 13 and 18 type O squatting versions for each of the above, trying to cover a broad range of potential mistypes that would result in downloading the malicious package. To evade detection, the threat actors have employed a new obfuscation method that wasn't present in the November 22 wave, now using a random 16-bit combination of Chinese ideographs for function and variable identifiers. Phylum's analytics discovered that the code used built-in Python functions and a series of arithmetic operations for string generations. So while the obfuscation creates a visually strong result, it's not very hard to break. While this obfuscation is interesting and builds up extremely complex and highly obfuscated looking code from a dynamic standpoint this is trivial reads phylum's report python is an interpreted language and the code must run we simply have to evaluate these instances and and it reveals exactly what the code is doing to hijack cryptocurrency transactions the malicious pipe packages will create a malicious chromium browser extension in the uh app data slash extension folder similar to the, the November 2022 attacks. Uh, it then searches for Windows shortcuts related to Google Chrome, Microsoft Edge, uh, Brave, and Opera, and hijacks them to load the malicious browser extension using the tac load extension command line argument. For example, a Google Chrome shortcut would be hijacked to uh, C slash program files slash Google slash Chrome slash application slash Chrome dot exe tac tac load tac extension equals app data escape escape extension. When a web browser is launched, the extension will load and malicious JavaScript will monitor for cryptocurrency addresses copied to the Windows clipboard. When a crypto address is detected, the browser extension will replace it with a set of hard-coded addresses under the threat actor's control. This way, any sent crypto transaction amount will go to the threat actor's wallet instead of the intended recipient. A list of regular expressions used to detect cryptocurrency addresses in the Windows clipboard and replace them with the threat actor's address can be seen below. In this new campaign, the threat actor extended the number of supported wallets and has now added cryptocurrency addresses for Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tron, Binance, Chain, Litecoin, Ripple, Dash, Bitcoin Cash, and Cosmos. 
for a complete list of the malicious packages that should be avoided, check the bottom section of Phylum's report. We have that linked in the show notes. If anybody is all that worried about Windows installations getting attacked. Yeah, all you have to do is uh, run Firefox and Linux and you don't have a problem. Sorted. <laughs> or uh, Epiphany on Elementary. Still calling it Epiphany? Or is it just... They call it GNOME Web. GNOME now. Web. Yeah. 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 And it doesn't have web extension support yet, so it's very secure. <laughs> there you go. If you can't use it, you can't hack it. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That's all we've got for security. So, uh, on to the bi weekly wanderings. You're up, Joe. Mm hmm. Well, it's been a pretty boring couple of weeks. My uh, back has been hurting, and I've started up physical therapy again. Turns out the discs in my lower spine are deteriorating, slowly but surely. Um, I'm a little young for it, but I've lived, and this is the proof. Um, <clears throat> I've ordered a couple of items for projects to work on, including a low-cost 512-gigabyte microSD card that only costs about $20. Um, <clears throat> I have not noticed any issues with it yet, but I have not used it much. I did test it to make sure it was actually 512, but that's about it. Um... I don't want to put any important information on it, but I do want to see how long it lasts. Prices are starting to come down on micro SD cards, and I hope that the longevity of those will increase as well. Um, now, I don't know where it went. It disappeared somewhere. It's a small little thing. I had it in an SD card adapter because I was using it uh, to test out um, some hubs. But um, like I said, it works. Uh, the read-write speeds weren't great, but they weren't terrible. And... I was going to see how long it lasted, but it got up and walked away. So uh, I guess when I find it again, I'll let y'all know. Now, I also ordered a WaveShare GamePi 20, which takes a Pi Zero and uh, turns it into a little mini handheld. I, I thought it would be fun to try. And, and let's see. I, did, I did receive the item, but I guess I wasn't paying attention. When I was reading the description, it says that it needs um, a 14500 battery for power, um, and that did not come with it, but it came with everything else that you would need to put together. I ordered actually two of these 14500 batteries, and they've arrived, but when the device arrived, um, it actually has a 14500 battery that's already soldered into position. Um, now, previously I had mentioned on, on before shows that uh, I had found a couple of uh, Pi Zero Ws, and that's what this takes, so that works out pretty well. But what I didn't realize, well, I did know that it needed the, the headers, but I thought that the headers came with the wave share, but it doesn't. So now the wave share got here, um, yesterday and then I had to order the, uh, headers and they should be here tomorrow. So I haven't had a chance to put it together yet. And I still need to go out to the website and get the, uh, <clears throat> proper operating system with the drivers already there so that it just works, and then dump a bunch of ROMs on there and get to playing. So I, now I have to wait for that the order for the headers to work. And 14500s, at least, are, are pretty useful. I mean, they're the size of uh, AA batteries, but they're the 3.7, they're 3.7 volts. So do not put them in devices that use AA's. But um, 
you can use the um, the the cages and for the the batteries and uh, use them with other projects, or just wire directly to them, and it's a, a three point seven volt battery. So I, I could use them in some of my uh, Bluetooth projects that I have, and that would work out really well. So it's definitely not a waste. Um, <clears throat> I have gotten stuff from Waveshare before, like that they have a really large one that I had picked up that used to use the uh, Raspberry Pi. What was it? I had the 3B in there, and um, but I gave it to my son, and that was probably a bad idea. He kind of destroyed it pretty quick. Um, he broke the screen, he broke the uh, the thumbstick, uh, some of the buttons, things like that. So I'll be removing the pie from that and, and finding other uses for it. Um, I also want to design and print a, just a closable case for it that I can throw in a bag so that I won't have, you know, similar issues with screen breakage. And, um, I'll let you know how that goes. Um, uh, I've been doing a lot more typing lately on my 1GX, like I said I was going to, but it is getting, more difficult to get the time um, since I've been going to the office more and just, you know, more stuff going on in general. I also found another use for audio bookshelf. Uh, first, a bit of background. Uh, I have a very extensive collection of ebooks, but this is all from when I was using uh, a PDA, the Dell Axum X51V, which was like, well, before my son was born. So that's been like 15 years. So. But um, they were all in like .lit format. I don't know if anybody remembers .lit format, but that's the format that Microsoft was putting out. Uh, so I imported that entire uh, library to Calibre and then batch converted it to EPUB and then had um, audio bookshelf point to the folder location. So now my entire older ebook library is available from audio bookshelf. Um, the next thing I'm going to do is have voice aloud, look at the download folder for audio bookshelf, and then try out a couple of ebooks on my phone and I'll let you know how that works. Um, hopefully I'll talk to the developer and see if he wants to eventually add some type of reader for ebooks onto there, which I think would be really cool, but I don't, I don't know how feasible that is. Uh, now, um, <clears throat> working on the next iteration for the lap dock or a laptop dock that I've been making for the 1GX, which is right here. If you're watching the video, uh, it's not lacking in USB ports now. Um, <clears throat> I have not mounted the last USB hub to the device, at least not permanently, but I have gotten the right angle USB 3.0 connector in place <clears throat> and attached uh, um, another four port hub and it sits snugly in the front. Um, I'm not sure if I want to glue it into position or make something so that I can turn the hub backwards after connecting some semi-permanent USB devices. But as it sits right now, it has 11 USB ports, 6 3.0, 4 2.0, and 1 3.1. It also has two HDMI ports, one of them micro, one of them full-size, and then two micro SD card slots and a full-size SD card slot. Um, which, while making it only about an inch, inch and a half taller, uh, doesn't really add to the width at all. So it's still very portable. Um, I do want to add some like rubber feet to the bottom so it's a little grippy and doesn't slide around. Um, but I, I still think it turned out pretty good. I mean, it almost looks commercially made. 
Um, it really adds a lot of functionality, and like I said, it doesn't make it take up much more room. I, I, I really like how it's turned out. I might do some redesign or make a second one that uh, just has some different functionality. But for now, I think this one has turned out really well. And I don't know if I'm going to put the FCLs up on Thingiverse or not, because it's this is very kind of specific to me. Um, now... I did also, I had designed and 3D printed some fat grips for my forearm workout device, um, which is a wrist roller and is, is actually suspended from a ceiling to take the shoulders out of the exercise. Um, I, I've had this device for years as a forearm exerciser, um, and it had just gotten a little too simple and too easy. so. With the uh, fatter grips on the sides, it actually puts a lot more effort into the forearms and, um, you know, reduces the mechanical advantage. So it takes more work. And I, it works out really well, and it is much more of an exercise. Just simple things you can do with 3D design and printing. Um, I also redesigned the wide grip pull-down handles that I had made um, because I didn't like that they weren't very comfortable. And the redesign actually was pretty comfortable. And I had a lot of problems getting it to print. It would break supports and make spaghetti every time. Um, I eventually printed it standing straight up in such a way that there were no supports. Um, and then found out that the hole that I had added for the screw was at the wrong angle on the STL um, from when I was redesigning all the angles. And I would either need to redesign it again or, and reprint, or I would need to drill and fix the issue. I chose to drill, which, you know, it worked pretty well. But also the hole, I, I didn't put it in the center, so I would no longer need to glue it to make it stable. With, with it at the bottom like that, it just stayed in place. And, you know, just being able to remove the, the screw to change it out is a good thing. Now, um, I, I did get it printed, and it looked really good. Um, I had made the infill at 100% in places where the stresses would be the greatest, but because of the size of the hand grips, I tried to save on some plastic and um, did a 30% infill on the rest of it, or a 20% infill on the rest of it. Now, that worked well at first. Um, then when I put some heavier weights on the pull-down, the handle snapped at the point where it transitioned from 100% to 20%, and that was in the, um, essentially, the actual handle portion itself, instead of along the um, lever portion where I had bulked up the the infill. And that it, it was quite exciting when, when you got that much weight up in the air and, and, and then one of your handles snaps. And it's the plastic actually was pretty darn sharp and it sliced up my fingers pretty good. You probably can't see it because the, the cut is so thin, but it is there. And just a nice little thin cut. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to try to print again, probably with the whole thing at 100% infill this time. But I'm also going to remember to wear gloves the first couple of times I use a, a 3D print, 3D printed piece of equipment like that. So, you know, I don't end up slicing my fingers off. Um, I also watched a video of someone redesigning or designing things in Tinkercad, and I found out that I was missing a lot of the functionality that Tinkercad has and a lot of the things that I was doing the hard way, like centering. Um, it has a much easier method that I did not know about, but I do now. 
plus um, a bunch of shapes that would make things a lot easier for the things that I've been designing and doing. Uh, gives me some ideas on designs that uh, I was having trouble figuring out, including making a full design for a Bluetooth headset. Now, previously, I've been using um, a neck piece that someone else designed and just adding a couple of things to it. But for me, it's just a little bit too stiff. Uh, the design doesn't allow for a, a lot of mobility uh, on that headpiece. It's just, I always feel like I'm going to break it when I'm putting it over my neck. So I, I want to make some changes to it. Um, I'm going to see if I can find a few more videos on, on design in Tinkercad just to get better at it myself and come up with something a little bit better. That's really all I've been up to. And unless you guys got any questions, Moss? That would be me. Well, I haven't been doing much lately, just keeping up on my podcasts. We've had some minor things going on, auto maintenance and a never before rent hike. Uh, we've got such cheap rent and we've had it this cheap for six and a half years. I'm not too worried about a $50 rent hike at this level. Um, I had two days of teaching canceled due to weather and to date have only had one work day this calendar year. That really hurts hard in the bank account area, uh, right about here. Uh, I had an idea for the next Distro Hoppers Digest that we should all take a stab at Blend OS, but we have each had different issues with it, so that might go by the boards. Maybe we expected too much of it, but the pedigree cannot be ignored. Um, Blend OS is the latest thing from Rudra Saraswat, and it's only been out of about three weeks now. Uh, so it probably works better than a three-week-old distro should, but obviously there's growing pains. Most of my free time has been taken up with reading. I found a few authors I'd never heard of who can really sling their words well and have written large numbers of books, some of which are series, but not all. Uh, one author in particular I've been impressed with, every book and or series that she writes cannot be connected to the others. They have totally different systems of magic in them, uh, totally different cultural setups. It's, it's brilliant the way she does this, and I don't know how any one author can do that. But that's it for me. Bill? And that's me. Well, it's been a bit, it's been a bit since I've been on the show, and all I really have to talk about is the work I've been doing on the, on the new show, Linux OTC. Uh, after the release of uh, episode three, it was revealed that we had an echo intermittently coming from uh, my mic as well as Leo's, or at least that was the perceived effect. After some sleuthing around, we discovered that the problem was coming from Norbert's track. Norbert uses an omnidirectional mic, which is useful when you need to put a mic in a central location, like on a table or something like that, and pick up everything that's going on in the room. Though in this case, it was literally picking up Leo and I from his headphones, uh, which I was able to filter out the uh, from his track with a noise gate. So I ended up having to basically start from scratch and then re-upload and let everybody know to delete it and then re re-upload it, you know, which was kind of sloppy. But luckily, the Linux community can be as forgiving as they are unforgiving. Um, yeah, so I, I used Leo, uh, Leo's guidance. He he uh, walked me through how to use a noise gate and get rid of that, and it, it worked out pretty good. Um, right now, the challenge I'm having is to uh, 
well, at the time I wrote this, the challenge I was having was getting the theme song to be at roughly the same volume level as the uh, as the rest of the dialogue throughout the show. A couple people were complaining that if you listen to it directly from the website, that the theme song was loud. And I think it's every bit of about six seconds, but I mean, it is what it is, you know. Uh, but I've, I've, since I wrote this, I've worked out a, a good method for fixing that problem. Um, one thing that's been on my mind lately is my choice with regards to hosting my other two shows. Uh, as many would remember from a previous, uh, a previous episode of Mintcast, where I outlined how to set up a podcast, I described how to, how I decided to use Red Circle to host the media files and generate the RSS feed. Um, well, Mintcast is uploaded to archive.org and the RSS feed is generated by a plugin we've got installed on the Mintcast.org. It's, it's a word, uh, WordPress plugin called Blueberry. At first, I thought it would be better to use a podcast provider to, uh, sim- simplify the workload. Although this decision did provide some convenience, I'm starting to question the decision. When I set up the show, I knew I wanted to distribute the content under the same Creative Commons license that Mintcast declares, but I didn't consider the idea that Red Circle may claim some intellectual rights to the content that we upload. Uh, With archive.org, we would never need to worry about this because, you know, their whole shtick is is, is, uh, Creative Commons. Um, it's unfortunate. I didn't really know how to generate and maintain RSS feeds in the beginning when I first started, and I was really learning everything from scratch, and I know so much more now than I did then, and had I known then what I know now, I might not have made the same decision. Uh, switching to archive.org now, in other words, switching our workflow over to something that more closely resembles how we do it on Mintcast uh, would uh, require listeners to have to search for and re-add the show to their players, which, you know, is not a big deal mechanically. But if listeners don't know to do that, um, if somebody is like not listening to the episodes on or about the time that you're doing the switch over, and then all of a sudden you just stop you stop having episodes show up in their feed, you know, they just, you might end up losing listeners, or at least that's the reality that's articulated in my mind. Um, so, uh, what I need is a solution allowing me to migrate from one feed to another with the least listener hassle, hassle prop possible. If anyone knows of a possible solution, please email me at bill at org or hit me up on the socials and, I'd love to uh, hear anybody's anybody's opinions and or advice on that subject. But that's really all I've got. Um, Danny's on the show and she's participating as though she's one of us, and she's got an entry here. So, how you been, Danny? Yeah. So um, lately in my personal life, I've been pretty focused on like my health and my fitness. Um, I'm a big Apple Watch user and I subscribe to Fitness Plus and I have a lot of friends that um, use Apple Watch too. So we kind of like keep each other in check with the fitness app there. Um, And I started using this app called Streaks um, to help me develop like a consistent exercise routine. I found for me that like that's 
one of the most difficult parts um, in like keeping up with my exercise is having some kind of like goals and routine. So streaks has been cool because I could set up like this week, I want to make sure that I do uh, like an hour of yoga and I want to walk for this many kilometers. And then I can kind of have structure without it being too rigid. And I can kind of adjust throughout my week and go, okay, you know, I need to still do some cycling. So I'll do that. So that's been really good. Um, so I've been consistently cycling, walking, doing yoga. I completed a 30 day core challenge in January. Uh, and I'm trying to start uh, getting into some of the kickboxing workouts too. So I'm pretty excited about all that. Um, and then, uh, you know, kind of over like the COVID lockdown, um, I got into a really bad habit of door dashing a lot. And I was spending a lot of money on like uh, delivery and not eating too great. So um, I've been trying to get back more into cooking. I, I love cooking and I think I'm pretty good at cooking. Um, so that's something I've been trying to invest more energy into. Um, but sometimes, you know, getting to the store can be a lot. I got a lot going on. So I'm going to try uh, out uh, HelloFresh uh, this next week. I ordered like a first box for them to see if it's any good, see if that's something that could work for me. Uh, but I've never done any of those kind of like uh, meal delivery services things. So that'll I've be used HelloFresh. It's, it's good. It, they give you everything you need in perfectly measured out quantities. And it's, it's almost, well, I won't say it's brainless. There's still ways to screw it up, but it's, it's actually pretty good. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny, like, um, one of the, like, home chefs I follow on YouTube, uh, recently made a video about it. And I've been kind of resistant to doing those kind of boxes before, but he was comparing it to, like, the price of, you know, regular grocery delivery. And he was like, yeah, you know, like, technically you can get more stuff, but especially if you're, like, a single person, you know, and you just need a small portions and it's kind of, like you said, it's just kind of brainless. He said the hardest part is not getting ahead of the recipes if you already know what you're doing. <laughs> So I'm excited to try that. Um, but um, one of my other major goals this year is to explore my style more and build more skill with like my hair and makeup. Um, so I was using Stitch Fix for a while to kind of build my wardrobe. Um, but I got in a rut with that. So I'm trying to kind of branch out and explore and find um, different places to get clothing I like from. Um, but I feel like the trends this year for women's clothing are weird. Uh, or at least they're not my thing. Um, like bell bottom pants are really big, I guess, again. And like all like the tops are like really boxy. And I just like, I don't feel good in those kind of clothes. So I'm really struggling right now with some of that. But um, are you not a Jenkos person? No. Yeah. I'm like, oh, it's weird to see these kind of trends coming around. The second hand market um, is big around here. Yeah. Same here. To women's clothing. Yeah. Yeah, like there are really good um, thrift stores around here, but it's hard because I'm like so much taller than like the average woman, right? So like the selection of things that fit me is is like oh. a lot now, smaller. Now here you mentioned just you were exploring your style with makeup and everything. Um, <clears throat> my wife has been re-exploring her style with makeup and things like that. So if you'd like to, you know set something up with her just let me know and yeah the two of cool. you can collaborate and try and you know figure out your styles together just yeah, find out where your change and stuff just find out where your local college women's basketball team shops and you should be able to find clothes oh yeah <laughs> are you that tall how, how tall are you if i no, i'm five nine oh, okay 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I still, I suppose that still kind of falls under the category slightly taller than average yeah, women, if that, you will. Average is what, 5'6", five, 5'5"? Five, five, no, like 5'4". Five, five, US really? women's height. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, average men's U.S. height is like 5'7". Okay. No, I, I pick on my daughter because she's like 5'4", and I call her short all the time. So. Oh, yeah. No, she's average. Average women's height. Yeah, it's pretty, average for pretty wild. <laughs> is she in the room, Joe? No, no, no. I, she, I had a picture I'll, I'll taken. I'll get her to listen to the recording later. I had a picture taken with me and... Uh, two of our best friends and, and my wife, and they were all sitting down and I just was just hovering over them so badly. It was horrible. Uh, I, that, that's when I started using the gentle giant logo on some of my uh, instant messengers and whatnot. <laughs> Go ahead. We're taking away from Danny's time. Oh. <laughs> no, it's a good conversation. Right. Um, yeah, other than that, like the other, the biggest thing I have going on is, um, I have a surgery coming up at the end of the next week. So, uh, I've been isolating at home to avoid getting COVID. Um, my surgeon actually got COVID and my, my surgery date was delayed. So I've been, I've been isolating for a long time now and I'm going to have to have like a three week recovery after surgery. So I'm feeling pretty cooped up and I'm really looking forward to like, getting able to go back out again and hang out with my friends and especially as the weather is getting nicer and stuff. Look, if you're stuck at the house anyway for the next several weeks, you can be on the next show too. I mean, <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> you, you, every time I, I, you know, I try to get us more hosts. Well, I'm trying to get back into some Zelda. Nintendo just released all the Game Boy games on um, Switch Online. So I'm playing oh. Minish Cap. Yeah, like Pretty the important. Switch, um, they've also, they, they did the remastered versions of like GTA Vice City. And that's one of the only reasons that I actually want to get a Switch is to get the it's old so school good. GTA. Yeah. I feel like the Switch has been like my best console for the value. Like I've played so many games on it that have just been amazing and that they're just hours and hours and hours of excellent gameplay. Well, well it's so this show play. does require a lot of time, so oh, we yeah. understand not everyone jumping on it. After all, we were the only idiots that have stuck here this long. It's burned up a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> Bill's still pretty new to this, but he's doing everything. I'm, yeah, but I'm also like bought in now, so yeah, I couldn't leave if I wanted he's to. Invested. <laughs> Because all the infrastructure is running on these machines behind me. <laughs> yeah, it, we were talking the other day that if Bill dies, then basically, yeah, we have to rebuild the show from nothing. We have to run to his house and steal all his computers. Right. <laughs> it's yeah, nice to it, be You important. know, it's funny. I, I do feel like working like full time in like the Linux and open source space and working on tech full time, like none of my hobbies are very techy, you know, because it feels like work. I, I, <laughs> so, I'm, it's like I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing anything to not be at the computer. Yeah, my, I'm just the opposite. I mean, my hobbies are just as techy as my actual work. Now, a lot of my hobbies lean more towards the hardware than the software, which is my work. But yeah, um, it, it makes work feel more like a hobby. My problem is I've got too many hobbies in too many different areas. I don't have time for the ones I have, and <laughs> I have to rotate my hobbies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't relate to any of you because <laughs> my work keeps me away. You're a trucker. Yeah, yeah. My work keeps me away all week. Well, you, I've got some automation. 
You but. could do some more with uh, handheld gaming when you're on your, 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 your trucking forays and, you know, you have to stop somewhere at night, just pull out the Steam Deck. and. Well, I've got two laptops that I take with me on the road to do various things. They both have different different functions but yeah uh it's 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 a lot to manage from the road and then your brain you've got to retool your brain i don't even know how to describe the the process of changing your brain over from this very rough and tumble blue collar world of being on the road with i mean everything that you've seen in the movies and then coming here back into this world on the weekends, you know, it's, I do, I do ride two, two, uh, two very different rails, you know, well, that. you try and split the difference with your th- three fat truckers podcast. But. Yeah. I mean, that, that shows completely off the cuff. Um, and it's, it's basically just us talking a little bit of smack here and there. And we've got some news on there and that three podcasts. I might be in a, in, a little over my head, but there you go. And it's a, it's a tough work life balance, you know. If you want two more, I can get you on two more. Oh, I'm yeah, I'm at the max right now. I'm actually thinking about one of those, Joe, but I'm sure my wife will kill me. Um, anyhow, we still have at least half a paragraph of Danny's biweeklies to get through. Oh. Right on. Well, we were right there at the end, weren't we? Oh, no, yeah, I'm wrapped up. I'm yeah, all, we were there. You know, on we, the last we, we even went more. <laughs> well, I also then. wanted to, to, you know, just discuss the fact that, yes, I do want to switch, but I also want a Steam Deck, and there's no way I'm going to be able to afford both anytime soon. And If I do get them, I'm probably going to play with them for like a week, and then they'll start collecting dust, much like, you know, my PSPs. So I live in a virtually game-free environment. I play Steam. That actually works really well on my one laptop that I take on the road with me. And I'm on Steam a lot. Yeah. And I, then, mean, uh, I, grew, I grew up with sticks and slinkies, and that was about it. And uh, I was in my... Mud and late, sand bits. I was in my late 20s. Did you push the hoop down the road with computer. the stick? No, but I had to flag down that dinosaur to get to work. Get to <laughs> yeah. Uphill in the snow both ways in Los Angeles. Well, you know, we didn't exactly have the internet at home when I was a kid either. Any of us. Really. I didn't have touch tone phone at home. Yeah. And, until uh, the took, I, I had I had rotary phones as a little kid, as a yeah. little little kid, but we had rotary phones and the party line. Yeah. <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> Same thing. I, I bet there's a good portion of people look, look, right look. now that are like, What in earth is a party when, line? When I lived in, in, when I was a little, little kid in small town Iowa, when I was living with my grandparents for a while, you could dial just the last four digits and that would get you local numbers. You didn't have to put in like the, the seven digits. All you needed was the last four. Yeah, we didn't even have area codes. We, um, you, had, you had the girl from, uh, from New Jersey on the other line. Yeah, no, when, actually, who you want to talk to? Have the rectile. But uh, I don't remember what we had to do to dial long distance uh, because so uh, we, we probably had to get an operator to do long distance, but local areas we can dial direct. I'm old. I can't help it. Uh, how often are you riding your bike, Danny? Oh, um, pretty frequently. So I have like a, an indoor bike, like a spin bike, and I I think that's like my... 
No, uh, it's a, uh, it's a different brand. Um, one I hadn't Sweeper. heard before, uh, so I can't even think of what the name of it is now. But yeah, it was something that was, uh, I'm a big fan of Wirecutter, the New York Times review website. So whenever I'm like, oh, I want to find out, you know, to buy something, that's where I found the review for this bike. So. so is it like the same idea as Peloton where you got the screen in front of you and you're following along with an app and you're racing other people, Swift or anything like that? Um, I, it's just a standalone bike. It doesn't have like a, okay, a okay. screen built into it or anything like that, but I use it with, uh, Apple fitness plus. So I use it like in front of my TV, you could use it with like an iPad or whatever too. Mm-hmm. But, um, so they do have classes like that, like spin classes you can join with an instructor and stuff. And sometimes I do those, but I feel like most of the time, like when I'm jumping on my bike, it's like, Oh, you know, while I watch TV or something, I'll just, you know, get in like a half hour, 45 minute cycle, you know, while I watch an episode of TV. And so it's a nice uh, way to just kind of fill in exercise. I love doing that. I love biking outside as well. But, uh, currently, um, I was using like a trainer, um, a bike trainer, you know, you put your bike on the stand and it sits there, but then oh, I yeah. ended up breaking some spokes on the bike that had the proper axle to do that. So I have to get that fixed. And so I'm stuck riding the mountain bike outside. It's too cold recently. So I've been lucky to get in once a week on that. So hopefully things will warm up and I'll go back to like three or four times a week. Well, we are talking about something that you can like fall back on when it's too cold or you don't really want to get outside. While we're talking about Danny, why don't we move on into innards and talk about Danny? Moving on to our Linux innards. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we've got a for our uh, our innards. We've got an interview as you'd have to be asleep to not notice uh, with Danielle Foray from the Elementary Project. And uh, thank you for coming on the show again. Um, uh, we do have some questions here. You know, I I feel like we're going to go off on different tangents, but it's okay. Um, uh, so first off, I guess pick a rail, any rail. Yeah. Uh, what, what got you started in Linux to begin with? Yeah. So, um, when I found out about Linux was around the time where like, uh, do you remember like dig.com? Like pre Reddit, they had like the dig, uh, podcast and stuff. This was like, I think pretty early days of like podcasting becoming more popular and like everything was, you know, RSS feeds and then dig came out and it was like one of the first like big, like social media news kind of things before, you know, Reddit or hacker news or any of that was very popular. So, um, dig had like a technology section and I started following more open source software like Firefox and stuff like that. And then one day, uh, they had this thing about Corora Linux and it was this, um, XGL live demo CD. And I didn't know any of those words meant, but I knew that they had this thing where you could put um, an image on a CD and pop it into any computer and it would boot up this desktop that wasn't Windows and it wasn't Mac OS and all the windows were 3D animated and they exploded in fire and you had the cube and, you know, it was <laughs> comp is stuff, right? So that was kind of my introduction into what Linux was, was seeing this thing of like, there's a completely different 
way, a completely different third way that you can run a computer that is like infinitely open and free and different that you can make it into anything you want it to be. Wow. That's cool. Uh, so what made you decide to, uh, building on that, what made you decide to make your own distro? I think that came from more of like, um, this idea of as I started getting more into figuring out what I wanted my computer to be like, like getting more into like visual design and mockups and things like that. And uh, exploring some communities like gnomelook.org where people were sharing mockups. And um, I, I kind of started to build up like a little community. Um, and uh, I got some of my mockups published on like OMG Ubuntu uh, and it attracted some developers and we were started working on patches to different applications. And so we had like a little community of application developers trying to do interesting design things. And we wanted a way to put it all together into like a disk image or like an experience that we could install and not have to like build everything from scratch every time. So it's kind of like more of a thing of necessity or like a showcase or like um, trying to figure out like, okay, like, you know, we have all these like disparate parts, but how do we put them together into something that we can share? Oh, wow. Um, so the, the distro that we're talking about, of course, is elementary OS. Um, can you just give us kind of the elevator pitch on that distribution? Sure. So, uh, elementary OS is definitely focused more on regular people. Uh, we bill it as a replacement for uh, Mac OS or Windows. And, um, it, it's really focused more on just your, your regular computer user on laptops and desktops. Like we're, we're not building like an enterprise product. Uh, we're not focusing on like big government contracts or trying to get into like industry or anything like that. It's just something that's really human centered. And so we've always kind of been about combining like the technology and the power of open source software with like human centered design principles. So it, um, I've heard people say in jest, of course, that it reminds them of Mac OS just at a first glance. And, um, would it be fair to say that you've taken, you've taken a lot of design influences or, uh, inspirations from Mac OS in the way I, that I would say no. <laughs> okay. You know, we actually, uh, we came out with an article, um, like several years ago where we we're talking about like kind of our design origins. And the Pantheon desktop is an evolution of where we were with GNOME 2. So that's kind of where we started was the GNOME 2 desktop. And then we started kind of picking and pushing at that. Um, and so really that's our biggest like foundational, um, design thing is, is GNOME 2 and not really anything else. But as our, as our visual design and stuff has started to evolve, we've taken hints from, you know, languages like material design. Um, Mac OS is, is really, not a forethought. It's like one of those things where it's like we're gathering like, okay, some like design research from different operating systems. It's like one of the ones you look at, but it's never like a, a big thing. It's never a main source of, of, of design inspiration. Yeah. Cause I've, I've often thought, cause I mean, you know, as well as I do, you hear it, people have said it, but I think that those people are just people that see it like a picture of the desktop sitting 
on a screen and they've never actually used it or interacted with it. And then they compare it to a picture of Mac OS on a screen. I think that's, that's gotta be where that comes from in my mind anyway, you know, and then when you get to get to using it, you see that there's a lot of, uh, very bespoke, uh, influences going on there. Um, but, uh, so it's written here in the notes uh, what, what are some of the design influences behind Pantheon? Is it like, I see you've got Nintendo written as one of them. Yeah. So when, when I'm thinking about like where, where does my design background come from and like, what are the biggest principles that, that push what I think of as good design? Um, a lot of those like good interaction patterns do come from like game design from companies like Nintendo. And like, um, there's this, you know, great quote from, uh, I believe it's Onuma who works on the legend of Zelda series. And he talks about like, you know, when he's putting together a design team, the kind of people that he wants to work with are people that like are really interested in like mountain climbing or scuba diving and not people that are so interested in games. And I think that's like such a, like a, experienced focused approach to team building where you're really looking at like what we're doing isn't about games it's about fun and i think that's like something that i i always try to keep in mind is like we're trying to build an experience we're not trying to build an operating system and you know when you're when you're thinking about like design principles like um obviously you know Dieter Roms comes to mind and Braun and his 10 principles of design and like one of the biggest ones that i always think about is um good design is honest and so when i'm going through a design um and especially thinking about like interface copy like what are those kind of language that we're using is this copy honest does it actually represent what this thing is doing are we in any way being like, are we glossing over what is actually happening? Are we really explaining things? Are we really having an honest interface here? And so that's like super important to me is like Dieter Rahm's principles design really good. Um, but another, you know, kind of um, out of left field ones that people don't think about is like oh. Bruce Lee is is really interesting for me. And um, his... Uh, Jeet Kune Do, his martial arts style. Like if you read his book about um, what Jeet Kune Do is, is like the style of no style. It's like this idea of um, decreasing extra. And so he talks about like, you know, the, the daily work isn't about building up more. It's about taking away all the unnecessary things. You know, when people, uh, when his students would ask him, like, how do you punch faster? He would say, you punch faster. Because that's all it's about is like doing the least, doing the least motion. And I think that's really like an interesting way to look at design too is like, how do we make a great interface? Is like do less, like do less, reduce the amount of work that a person has to do to have the experience they want to have. Now, that is extremely interesting when it comes to, to Bruce Lee and Jeet Kune Do. But um, I don't know anything about Dieter Rams. Yeah, Dieter Rams is a hugely influential designer. Um, there's like the iconic era of like brawn design, uh, industrial design. Um, if you look up the 10 principles of design by Dieter Rams, I feel like that's something that like a lot of designers look up to. And actually a lot of like the industrial design, like Apple industrial design when Johnny Ive was there, like Dieter Rams is like one of his big idols. Oh, cool. So uh, you you've recently had a major release upgrade to version 7 Horus. Congratulations on that. 
Um, Thank you. What are some of the major changes you'd like to highlight for that version? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest things for me um, in OS 7 is just kind of like we've kind of gone through everything with the fine tooth comb and we're really focused on like our user feedback and and trying to think about like what are people telling us of the experiences they're having that they're unhappy about and where can we improve those? And so there's a lot of like changes to uh, settings or to the way like workflows are handled, like the um, side loading workflow, especially or experiences with alt stores. People were saying they were kind of unhappy with the way that present was presented. So a lot of work has gone into improving that. Um, and just little settings and features to make you feel more comfortable if you're coming from other operating systems. Um, you know, cross compatibility with uh, alt stores like FlatHub more. Um, the feedback app is like a huge highlight. Um, you know, something that's really important to us is getting feedback from the people who use elementary OS. So we made this app to make it really easy for you to report an issue uh, about any of the pre-installed components. Uh, accessibility features like uh, when you're setting up for the first time, if you're a left-handed mouse user and you click using the right mouse button, we'll ask you, you know, hey, is this your primary click button? You want to switch to a right hand, uh, left-handed click mode? So I think it's just like all the little details like that that add up are, the, are kind of the most important things. The accessibility story is, I mean... I don't know that it's fair to say not enough work gets done in that in that area. I would imagine it requires a very skilled set of developers to be able to work on these things and uh, an option like that. I remember you talking about that on the on Destination Linux, and I thought, oh, gosh, that's you got to know people are going to be happy about that because left handed people tend to be marginalized, I think, uh, when it comes to their user experience. Um, uh, so you was you was talking about App Center. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? How how is App Center on Elementary any different from, like for example, we've got uh, what do we call it? Software Manager on Mint. Um, uh, how do you think uh, App Center might be a little bit different in terms of how it works and what it offers from other application stores? Yeah, I, I'm not familiar with uh, Mint Software Man- Manager, but I'm kind of. Like App Center is built around um, both the front end desktop GDK app, but also the App Center remote, which is a Flockpack remote. So it's more about building like a complete app store experience and not like a package manager front end. So when you're opening up App Center, like pre-installed on elementary OS, what you get is uh, applications that developers have written specifically for elementary OS. And uh, some of them are paid apps, too. So we want to make sure that uh, indie app developers are able to be paid for their work, like you see in other mainstream application stores. So that's kind of, like, I think, like the definitive thing about App Center is that it's um, it's an app store experience and not just like a package manager front end. Right. And I can say I, I installed Elementary on uh, KVM here on this machine. And I can... Just to describe how it kind of worked for me, I opened the App Center, and of course, I looked for Audacity, and that's that's not available. What you're what you're presented with initially is the curated apps by the Elementary Project, and well, we and, don't we don't make these apps; they're they're community made, well, third party apps. Okay, um, yeah. <laughs> all based on Flatpak, right? Right. And, yeah. And uh, 
So what ends up happening then, you search for a package that's not initially offered like Firefox or something like that. And it tells you that, uh, I can't remember the exact wording, but there's a link there to FlatHub. And then you're taken off to FlatHub to, to install in what it felt kind of seamless to me. But once you install that first FlatHub application, you basically have Flatpak or FlatHub rather in the software store in the app center. Um, all the other stuff starts showing up then when you search for it. Is that right? Is that, is that how that was supposed to work or? Yeah, so I think that's something that we're trying to do is make sure that the um, the experience of sideloading apps or that using alternative stores is a smooth experience. And, you know, we don't want uh, to create like a walled garden. Flatpak is a decentralized technology, right? And so I think like what would make a really healthy Flatpak ecosystem is to have to have lots of different stores. And uh, so I think that's something that... Um, I really want to make a core part of the the experience on elementary OS is that adding alternate stores is something that we expect people to do and that it works well. Yeah. And it was, it was rather seamless. And then I also, I tried to install a paid app for free. Um, I, I installed torrential and uh, you, you just, you know, reduce the amount that you want to pay for the app to zero and it installs. It says try for free. And then uh, just to see how seamless the process was, I uninstalled it and then re- uh, and then paid for it. And then I found that process to be, you know, really kind of easy with the the credit card transaction and all that and quick. And there wasn't a lot of sometimes paying for stuff can be a little cumbersome, you know, but I found that to be really relatively simple. Um, and then it installs and then you got it, you know. Which is which is kind of cool, and then, um, like I said, you've got you've got FlatHub. Then um, is now. Do you use Stripe on the back end for the uh, payment processing? Is that how that works? Or yeah, that's right. Yeah, all the payment processing is secured through Stripe, and Stripe actually handles um, the App Store split as well um, on the back end. So when you um, purchase an application for a developer. Uh, the only thing that we get from Stripe is the um, platform fee for like hosting. And then all the rest of everything goes directly to whoever the developer is for that app. That is awesome. We had talked about uh, how that is working in terms of how monetization is getting out. And I think we're switching to a minor key here. Uh, <laughs> how has that been working for you, Danny? Um, I mean, for elementary, um, App Center isn't like a profitable venture. It's not something that's a profit center for us. I think sometimes we actually lose money on it. Um, it, it's pretty much just like paying for itself as far as elementary is concerned. Uh, for app developers, um, we're looking like in terms of like, what is the scale of income is probably more just like beer money at this point. I don't think there's anybody like making a living off of uh, selling their apps in App Center. Um, but what I have heard from folks is that it is more than what they're getting uh, when they have like a donation link on their website, you know, compared to, to other things. So it's, it's a little bit better. Um, but there's still a lot of room to be like what it's intended to be. Okay, people out there, we are shaming you into spending money on open source. It's oh, worth it. It, well, we could talk all day about funding open source, and and I think 
it feels like we're starting to emerge from the darkness in terms of that subject. I, I want to be. No, I, I think that there's been some more <laughs> highlighting of the issues involved with not, um, you know, putting money towards open source right, and the results and of all that, the yeah. backing that open source projects provide to even major corporations that don't really feed money back into it. But I'm not sure that that's actually elicited any type of change in that arena. Yeah, I want to be optimistic, but of course, anything I know would be anecdotal. Um, so in, in the wider Linux world, uh, distros like elementary OS and Mint seem to get categorized together. Uh, what I mean is, you know, whenever you hear somebody describing Linux, they'll say something like, yeah, you've got, uh, you've got your more venerable distributions like, uh, Debian or what have you, and then off of that comes Ubuntu, and then you've got derivatives such as uh, Elementary and Mint, and it, we kind of get lumped into that category together. Um, what do you think are some of the, without knowing a lot about Mint, what do you think are some of the things that might set Elementary apart from other uh, distributions that kind of fall into that category? Yeah, I think like for the most part, um, you know, compared to a lot of different, uh, distributions, I kind of look at it as like, um, the philosophy behind the way we build elementary OS is a lot less like a greatest hits album and a lot more like a concept album. So if you think about like a lot of people, you know, when they're going into building a distribution, they're like, I'm going to pull in all the most popular stuff, what everybody likes the most. And then we're going to ship that. And that's a great model, I think, for people, especially coming, you know, from other operating systems that the want the familiarity if familiarity is like the most important thing to you, like doing that kind of greatest hit style build is awesome. But we want to do something that's a little bit different. Um, and like, I think in the way that I've talked about like App Center that, you know, we're, we're not just building like um, a Linux based operating system, we're trying to build like a computing experience. And so we're trying to build something that's cohesive and where when you touch a part of the interface, it's all meant to be together. Right. Um, okay, so uh, you're on elementary seven now. Is there an easy way? See, we've got a we've got tooling in Mint to upgrade from uh, tw uh, version 20 to version 21. Uh, is there an easy upgrade path from six to seven in uh, elementary? At the moment, we're still recommending like a backup and a reinstall. And we actually have like in our wiki, uh, we have um, like a recommended method for a backup and reinstall there. Technically, you can do some fiddly stuff in terminal, you know, the same way you could do on other distributions. Um, your success rate may vary. Like there's always tools and ways to do things, right? It's Linux-based operating system. Things can be done. Um, but as far as like a something that we feel proud of shipping, we're still working on it. Um, a big part of what we did in App Center in this cycle is we um, built out an offline updates process. And so we're trying to leverage that for release upgrades as well. And there are some like upstream things that we're um, relying on sh um, shipping that weren't available when we had uh, OS 6 built and some other things like that. So we have some technical blockers, but 
I'm hoping that um, very soon we will have a process that is like one of the best and easiest ways to upgrade between releases. Okay. I think nuking and paving, as they say, or backing up and then reinstalling, as you say, is probably still and will probably always be the best and more performant option to go. Um, yeah, it definitely gives you like a cleaner install environment yeah. and make sure that you don't have anything weird left over from older versions. Right. Because you do end up, you do end up building up a lot of cruft over time. And it's why I've, I, I've got two machines I run Arch on and you've got people in that community that are just absolutely philosophically opposed to nuking and paving, but even on an Arch system maybe especially on an arch system, uh, you're going to get buildup of cruft over time. And the only way to ensure that you're starting with something clean and performant is to nuke it and start from scratch. Um, uh, the next one here, uh, what is your release and upkeep process for elementary incorporated online banking, mortgage, pers personal loans, investing? I'm not sure. Did you write that one, Moss? I did not. Okay, so what? Uh, that must have been you, Joe. Oh, interesting. <laughs> well, because it's somebody put that in there. It wasn't me, and it sounds like uh, Londoner must have. <laughs> okay. Um, it sounds like they're whoever it is is asking. Um, some how other, do you finance an upkeep? Yeah. <laughs> I was looking for sure. a delicate way to ask a rather personal question. Yeah, so uh so Elementary Inc is um it's a US based company or a, a C corporation. Um we're a Stripe Atlas company, so we use a lot of kind of the stock stuff through 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 Stripe Atlas. Uh, Stripe Atlas. If you've never heard of that, it's like um it's kind of like a template for startups to be able to easily set up a company. So they have like a lot of recommended stuff that they're like, "Hey, um, you know, sign up with Stripe Atlas and here's all your forms for starting a corporation. And here's like some template forms for like drawing up shareholders and all that kind of stuff. So it just kind of makes it easy to make a legal entity. Um, so I'm currently using one of the banks that they recommend, which is Silicon Valley Bank. And I don't totally love them. So I'd love to switch to a different bank at some point, but. Um, we have like a bookkeeping company that they recommended, you know, but other than that, there's, it, I try to keep the company as simple as possible. You know, uh, I use a, um, a payroll company. I use Gusto for pay, payroll. I like them. Uh, but I, there's no outside investors in elementary. Uh, we don't have any loans right now at all. Um, there's no like big assets that you would have like a mortgage for, or there's no like big company assets like that. So it's all pretty, pretty simple. Like we, we sell, operating system online um do everything as above board as as possible just as a regular c corp and and there's no uh nothing too complicated <laughs> so you're not beholden to a bunch of people with money interest involved as no as and that's, that's super important to me yeah. is, is not having that outside investor influence that's awesome okay so um it can't be ignored that uh, you are an individual who has made some choices in life that uh, uh, some, some personal choices. And um, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about some of that right now. You've uh, I, I suppose it's been about a, a year since you've transitioned. Um, yeah, it's, 
it's been about uh, a year and a half. Um, and definitely, I would say the choice is being closeted. The choice isn't transitioning, right? Okay. Like I'm, I was born trans. Um, that's part of who I am. So I made a choice not to be closeted anymore. <laughs> so you made the choice to come out of that, to, to be who you truly are. Nothing more and nothing less. Is what I guess is right, what I meant yeah. by that. Um, um, and so I, I remember I, I've followed you on Twitter for years now, and I haven't said a lot, but I've, I've watched some of the things you said and, and, um, he just I, admitted to being a stalker, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Twitter is though, isn't it? I mean, you, you're, you're reading the stuff other people, you know, they don't necessarily accept you as a friend, but here you are listening to their, I, I still haven't been able to get the process down, but I, I remember reading, uh, and when, when you first announced on, I think it was on Twitter, at least that's where I read it at first. I remember, uh, worrying a little bit about, because I know how people around here respond when somebody announces that they are, uh, uh taking steps like Something that. Something other than normal. Yeah. Well, you're in Indiana. Gee whiz. Yeah. We're, we're in a really twisted part of our culture where, um, more people are being themselves and being authentic about it. And more people are attacking those people. And yeah, first, I would definitely like to say that being queer is very normal. <laughs> well, I mean, you're in California, you know, um, if you came here, <laughs> blame it on California. Look, right? look, you have percentage wise, you actually have probably the exact same percentage of people that are gender non-normative just about everywhere. Yeah. Or or queer or any any of the other <clears throat> uh, labels that people put on things like that. But um, it's just more hidden in a lot of places because in a lot of places you get a lot more judgmental, excuse my language, pricks that are going to do stupid things. Yeah. And I never really saw, I didn't read like a lot of comments that you were getting in response to the things you said. First off, I commend your bravery. I really do. I <laughs> Thanks. I mean, it was, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of a inspiration, I think, for people who are exposed um who you know right or wrong um your perception the way per people perceive you as an individual may or may not have a direct impact on the project that that you are working on you know and to have to have the bravery to be yourself is is really quite something and i remember when i first started reading and then i could i could sense the frustration that you were having in some of your, uh, in some of your messages, I, I started to worry if maybe the project would, would suffer as a result of some of this. And, and clearly it hasn't because we've got, uh, let her say that bill. Right. Well, okay. I'm just trying to, just trying <laughs> to set it up so as, nicely that we don't get to a question. <laughs> um, so what, has it uh, been harder for you? Yeah. Has it gotten easier? How do you feel about this? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's um, definitely being a public person, there are a lot of disadvantages, and especially being a trans person, um, you know, a lot of people, um, I don't want to say that there's any way to transition that's privileged, because there isn't, but there is a lot of people that kind of enjoy 
um, a little bit more anonymity in their transition. And um, there's there's a lot of people that are trans that you've interacted with that you would never know it because they're what we call stealth. And that's something that I'll never be able to have because you can search my name on Google and find me anywhere. So being a public trans person is hard. Um, but I, you know, I'd say like the most major effects, um, are less on the company and, and more on me. Um, you know, being a trans person and being a woman, I don't think has any effect on the way that I, I design or, or develop software that's any different than it has been, you know, my entire life. Like I've always, uh, been about, um, inclusive design and, and human focused design and things like that. But uh, yeah, you, you definitely expose yourself to um, both transphobia and misogyny on the internet. And that's an ouch. I mean, that's getting it from both sides there. And I've seen some of the things that um, women have to go through in tech, even in like my job as production support, um, where I've had my, the people that work under me, the women that work under me, I've had some of them that have actually had them change their emails and change their um, signatures so that their their names were more masculine so that I did not have to keep going behind them and re-explaining the exact same thing that they just explained in the exact same way. But because I'm a guy, I got listened to the first time. And because they were a girl, they everybody wanted to argue with them. Wow. That's- yeah, it's true. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a funny experience. Um, like finding out which things are because even prior to transition like trans trans femmes experience misogyny in a different kind of way like we experience trans misogyny right where we're told that um there's something wrong with us because we're too feminine and then when we transition and people view us as feminine then we get all this stuff about you know well um you're a woman so you couldn't possibly be competent Yeah, I've been reading a lot about uh in Olympic sports where uh they're trying to go back to genetic testing of female athletes and we're going, but we did that in the eighties and we found out that most of the women athletes that were born women have Y chromosomes. Uh it really makes it hard More to higher say, well, testosterone you <laughs> levels naturally. Um which is odd. But um there is something to be said when it comes to transitioning and Olympic sports, because if you look at things like weightlifting in particular, um, someone that has had those higher levels of testosterone as a male their entire life and then they transition, that means that they've spent more time being naturally able to bulk up. So there is an argument there, and I'm really glad I'm not one of the people that has to make the decisions on whether or not yeah. that's so valid. None of that is actually true. Like if you look at all the peer-reviewed research, that after about a year or two of transition, that there is no discernible difference. And um, I know, especially from like my own transition, that the muscle mass melts off quick. I struggle to open my Gatorade bottle sometimes. Uh, you know, I dropped off, uh, you know, I can't, uh, do a lot of activities as hard. You know, I, um, it's in your blood, it's in your bones, it's everything. Like hormones change your body so fundamentally. And, you know, if, if it were true, if trans women were somehow superior athletes, then they would be winning things. And we aren't, well, we aren't winning. <laughs> 
uh, when it comes to there are um, a few exceptional individuals, yeah, but there are a the, few exceptional individuals yeah. that are born female too. The, so, the, right, the, the except where this was coming into the public notice was one in um, MMA where uh, a trans woman was just dominating, and they were saying that it was because of the transition and that um, she was had, had naturally built on more muscle from being a man in the past. And then there was also in um, weightlifting with um, certain Olympic level weightlifters um, setting world records that were um, women that had transitioned as well. And they were just built like guys, essentially. So so if you if you look at actually um, women that are in the same height and weight classes, that there there is no difference. Like okay. all the peer reviewed science says that there is no difference. So even though, you know, editorials and headlines try to make it seem like there's something like the scientists are telling us that that's not true. So if in hmm, since uh, you're now in a more, I would say, your natural state, um, you're sort of metaphysically freed in a way that this um, has this affected or has this improved like your ability to. um how how has it uh, affected your? I'm sorry, Moss. <laughs> how has it affected how has this your? Changed your life. Your yeah. How's it? Well, I mean, uh, has it now that you freed yourself of all this? Has it improved your your um, designing or your your work with like elementary and all that? Do you do you feel like it's affected it in any way? I I don't really think that has like any major impact on my work besides, um, you know, people seeing me as a public figure in a different way. But in terms of the way I do my work, it's the exact same. Like I have had, you know, people um, tell me that seeing me doing this kind of stuff makes them feel like they belong, that makes them feel more accepted. And I'm really appreciative of that kind of thing. But um, as far as like me as a designer, me as a developer, like it's all, it's all the same. <laughs> That's good. Because one of the things that I worried about when I first started seeing the uh, Twitters, the tweets, was whether or not the, the project was going to suffer. Because I know what would happen if somebody around here in this part of the country made, uh, made an announcement and then went through with that kind of thing. Um, well, they would lose support on pretty much everything they had going on in life. And uh, I actually see it changing here. That's interesting. That dynamic it's, and this is central freaking Texas. And I do see it um, changing with the, the younger generation, especially like um, my daughters have friends that are uh, discussing um, their transitioning or wanting to transition. Or um, I think rain who came by earlier today has actually started the the process but um i don't know all the details and it, it just seems like it's generally more accepted around here and more people are announcing and it's not really having that heavy of a negative impact that i can see on their lives now there are still a lot of um the establishment that has issues. And I know we discussed this last weekend where I was talking about the, um, the school board trying to bring a trans bill or well, not a trans bill, but a, a, a trans 
bathroom thing to the schools specifically since they couldn't get it through the state where um, any individual that wanted to go or use a restroom that wasn't based on their birth gender had to come before the school board and basically, you know, give their names, the fact that they're there for the transitioning and to use another bathroom and to basically dox them, make their um, very public that they were transitioning, make it very public that where they live, who they are and all that. And um, that did not pass, thankfully. And it got completely cut off, even by some of the establishment that was already there. But it's still really disappointing to see that thing. But I, I still think that there has been a lot of improvements around here specifically. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I, you know, that kind of thing is, is pretty horrific to see happening. And, you know, I guess that is one thing that, um, luckily I feel like conference organizers are already ahead of it, but like, I would not feel comfortable traveling to certain states anymore if there was a conference there or there are certain countries where if I travel to, I will be jailed for being there. It's if they find out that I'm trans. Um, so it, it is in some ways, the, yeah, like those kind of things, I guess, do affect um, my work a little bit in terms of discrimination. But um, it, 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 yeah, it's just pretty horrific to think about in general as a person because like, you know, I don't belong in a men's restroom. You know, if I went in a men's restroom, I'm I'm putting myself at risk of assault. You know, uh, it's uh, that's a scary place for for me to be. <laughs> the restroom discussion is always going to be the most difficult because, you know, I am. No. Look, if I walked into a restroom and there was a woman in, in said restroom, I would immediately turn around and walk back out and double check that I had walked into the right restroom because I would assume that I messed up. And, and then if there was still a woman in there, I'd be like, you know what, I'm going to wait out here for a few minutes. My fear. I'm not sure I would do that. I, I, I think, oh, there's a woman in the restroom. Okay. There's, there's plenty of room for us both. I'm not going to mess yeah. with her. She's well, not going to mess with me. Yeah. But with the urinals up in the front, there, there's actually some laws that would equate that to, um, what's the words I'm looking exposure. for? A, a sex crime. Yeah. Exposure. Yeah. And you could be put on the, um, sex offenders list for that. So I'm going to wait out in the hall. Okay. Uh -huh. mm. As as a father of a daughter, you know, when when these subjects first started coming up, because I've got my son, pretty much 90 percent of his friends are uh, transgender and the discussion first comes up. And uh, from my point of view, I'm like, well, I'm in this strange place where I really I I. I accept people the way they are and that's because i expect people to be nothing more and nothing less than what they absolutely are and the only fear i've ever had is not of uh people that have transitioned but of the people that would take advantage of uh which might not be a rational fear but the people that would take advantage of something like that to go to go into a girl's restroom you know for nefarious purposes in that so i mean yeah I, but most of those people are, are the people that were going to find an excuse to do something yeah that's stupid the, anyway and that's that's absolutely yeah true. there's there's not any security guards at restrooms stopping men from going in there and sexually assaulting yeah. women now and by the numbers you know trans women are getting assaulted in, in all kinds of bathrooms wherever we are we're just getting assaulted wherever we go <laughs> we're not the ones 
you know, perpetrating mm-hmm. stuff on, on any kind of scale. Like there's obviously bad people in, in any group of people, right? Yeah, like, they, they must be mistaking you for Republicans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we're uh, statistically that's, you know, it's, we're not doing that. <laughs> have, have you have you noticed a difference, though, in, say, the last 20 years with how um, people are treated if they are transgender, effeminate, or effeminate men or anything like that, or butch women? Yeah, yeah, I think, like, in general, you're talking about, like, gender nonconforming people in general, right? right? Which I wouldn't consider myself gender nonconforming because I'm very femme presenting, you know? (laughs) But in terms of, like, people that are obviously, like, gender nonconforming, it's, in some ways, I feel like that there is more acceptance. But in other ways, I feel like they're getting more harassment from people who think they're trans, and especially for um, more... um, mask presenting women gender non-conforming cis women um are being harassed because people think that they're trans women um so i think it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that you know so the elementary well, no project, matter what we have a long way to go on all levels of civil rights we do but i yeah. i can tell you 100 percent, we are way ahead of where we were when i was in high school i've got a memory of a young man showing up for first day of school and he was uh dressed feminine and acted as such and he was not treated well and i don't remember him coming back to that school after one day and now i mean oh gosh i mean the high school i went to has got so many people that probably wouldn't have done well in my day. So I, I really want to believe that we're emerging somewhat. And this is, they've the done more to hide it back in your day though. Well, that's what I, I mean. That, that speaks volumes as well. I think though, that people felt as though they needed to do that. And as I said before, my, my son is a freshman in high school and, um, four of the, He's got like six or seven main friends in his little clique, and at least four of those are, are uh, I, I can't tell you if they've medically went through the entire process, but they, but they have transitioned at least, at least from the outside. Um, and those kind of people just would not be able to get through a single day, as I remember. I, I just don't see how whatever is in their pants is actually any of my business. Nope. Yeah, and at that age, you know, it's very, very rare for there to be any kind of medical intervention besides puberty blockers, which are totally irreversible and actually were developed for cis kids who start puberty too early. So um, it's unless you've been on puberty blockers for years and have been seeing a psychologist for years and have been in the system and, you know, you're like 17 and are gonna start HRT anyway when you turn 18. Like, there's like very, very few exceptions where you would actually be allowed to take um, HRT as a minor person. And if it's if it's difficult where you live, I can imagine it is downright impossible here legally. Sure. Yeah. As an adult, uh, yeah, I had to go through multiple psych evaluations with multiple doctors over months um, to be able to be prescribed HRT as an adult. You know, it was it was difficult just to get on HRT and any other step of transition. There are long waiting periods and they make you reevaluate. Um, I I've had to 
continually had psyche valuations for different things. I've had to talk to different, you know, multi-specialists, this and that, and sign things and take classes and take, you know, there's waivers and like, it's a really gatekeepy process. And that's, that doesn't even include all the legal stuff, you know, to change um, my identity documents, I probably spent $1,000 and it took me, you know, six months or more just to get my identity documents changed. Whereas a cis woman gets married and just, you know, marriage certificate, boom, there's your last name. So it's, well, it's honestly difficult. the same when it comes to, to changing the last name of even your, your kids after a birth certificate has been made without, without an adoption or anything like that. It's still cost that much. Or if, you know, I wanted to change my last name. It would still cost me like a thousand dollars to get that done, which would, does suck. But would you say yeah, that that that, psycho, uh, that psychology, that psychological process that you went through, is that a, would you say that that's appropriate? Um, given that maybe people might not always know from one week to the next who they are, or do you think I? It's, I personally think it's too gatekeepy. Um, uh, if there are people that start HRT and then it turns out that that's not for them, they know quickly. Like in trans communities, I have seen people say, Hey, I started HRT and I feel worse. And they know fast. Like, you know, if your brain chemistry is not compatible or you know, if you immediately feel better and things, you know, like Make more sense. it just, yeah, it's like, it's like if you, um, it's hard to explain what this, this is like, but when I've talked to, um, actually cis women about going on and off birth control, where they, they're experiencing like certain symptoms of brain fog and things like that. It's like that kind of experience where you know right away if your brain chemistry is getting better or getting worse. And of course, we never hear about that particular aspect of transitioning in the media. They don't want to think about what changes. Yeah, you know, like you said, if if you're not meant to have the hormones, then your body will not react well to them. Well, you've never heard that in the press. I haven't. Right. Yeah, and it takes a long time for hormones to have any effect. Like for me, I don't think that um I started passing with any high rate. And what I mean by passing is like people seeing me and assuming that I'm a woman. I don't think that that happened to me until like six to nine months on hormones where people started seeing me and immediately saying that is a woman. So it, it's not a fast process. There's a lot of time for you to go, oh, this isn't for me. Then it have not really any lasting effect at all on you. So to get back on the elementary subject wagon. Um, so the, pr the project has not suffered as a result whatsoever. People haven't left in droves. It turns out, um, has that happened? Yeah. Has it not happened? <laughs> no, you know, as far as I know, I don't think that there's been anyone that stopped contributing or anything like that for that reason. At least they haven't told me that or I haven't heard anything like that. Um, all our major contributors are, are still there. And, and um, you know, I've received words of support from people and our community is still strong and, and doing what we do. And, you know, if anything, um, I've gotten more messages from people uh, that either weren't publicly trans that were like, Hey, by the way, I'm trans too. And it's been a cool part, you know, to be a part of the community, <laughs> you know, stuff like that of finding out that other people that, um, that I've worked with and, you know, the expanded like general open source community are trans. 
Um, there's a lot more people working on open software, open source software that are trans uh, or trans adjacent or, you know, queer in some way than than you may think. Well, that's really encouraging because I, you know, I really, I really kind of thought about that in the beginning, like, well, you know, gosh, because I know around here what kind of reaction you would get. Or, I mean, it, it speaks volumes to the quality of open source people, I think, that uh, we can be honest about who we are and we are accepted for that. Well, I think we've also seen a lot in the open source community about acceptance on other levels. For instance, we've had a lot of youth come into Linux and they get just glommed onto. It's not go away, kid, you bother me. It's, you know, look, look at all what Rudra has done. And yeah, what, they uh, tend to be amazing. You know, that's the thing. You can't yeah. get past it. So, so I, I really think the open source community in general is a more accepting community than most in the U.S. Yeah. Fortunately, it's also international. So, <laughs> right. I think we have a lot um, to thank like Gnome in particular for like their culture of acceptance. Like I've seen more with people who interact with the Gnome community as far as like being accepting of people's different, you know, cultures and, and gender identities and sexualities and things like that. And especially Gnome related conferences and stuff too. Like there's a real strong sense of, of community there and being inclusive. Right. Well, we could go on and on for hours about all of this. I suppose we should probably move on. I thank you so much for coming on and talking about all this stuff. I really do. Yeah, for sure. We enjoyed having you. And um, like Joe says, you can come back anytime. <laughs> we need people. Well, thank you very much for, for having <laughs> yeah. me and giving me a space to talk about these kind of things. Oh, anytime. And we mean it. Um so if uh, if nobody has anything else, we'll uh, move on to vibrations from the ether. And uh, we've had some emails. We've had some interaction. Uh, you want to take this one, Joe? Hold on. Give me a second. I have to reload the show notes. Because evidently they broke while I wasn't looking. Uh, yeah, mine did too. Yeah, you got to... I bring it up in LibreOffice and read it that way. Keep well, that I put in some updates. Well, yeah, Just Bill, but then sure. you don't get to see who's claimed an article. Uh, I know. <laughs> but there's nothing worse than being in the middle of reading something, and then all of a sudden it scrolls all the way to the top and... Yeah, that's as, true. As I recall, in, in yesterday's discussion, we have all these emails aimed at Joe, and I thought well, I would read the email and Joe would, would respond. Ah, there you go. Yeah. They weren't really, like, aimed at me. It's just I, I responded to them because I saw them first. You know, right. I, I keep the email brought up so I can see them. So, so anyhow, Brad, Al Brad Alexander writes, I figured I would throw in another lighter email with a hardware recommendation. My lovely bride and I just celebrated our 36th wedding anniversary last week on January 23rd. I had been looking to replace my e-reader since I was still reading on my Nokia N900's 4-inch screen with tiny fonts. I decided that my eyes ain't getting any younger, so I started looking at e-readers. I didn't want anything with an ecosystem, since I have somewhere north of a 1,000 EPUBs and PDFs in my caliber library, and Amazon and B&M both have vested interest in you buying their own proprietary formats. 
Kindles only started supporting EPUB formats late in 2022, if you can call converting the EPUB to AZW3 format support. So it came down to the Kobo Libra 2 in the pocketbook era. The reviews I read were neck and neck, and what finally pushed me toward the era was that Kobo appears to want to develop their own ecosystem as well. You can only listen to Kobo-branded audiobooks on Kobo devices. The era has been great with its e-ink Carta screen. It not only has tap gestures to turn pages, but physical buttons, unlike the comparable Kindle. Plus, the accelerometer lets you rotate the reader to any direction and the text will adjust, but so do the buttons. It also has decent text-to-speech capabilities, and I have listened to it read to me while cooking or doing dishes. The only thing I wish it had that it doesn't is night mode, where you can have white text on a black background, but I'm about to make a feature request. Anyway, if you're looking for a 7-inch e-reader, this one comes highly recommended. B. Joe? And then I responded, um, Man, crazy as this is, I am going to be discussing converting my ancient.lib format ebook library to EPUB on the show. And I'm also looking for an e-reader for my daughter, and I'm thinking of a, just using a cheap fire tab. Um, <clears throat> that was my response, and Brad had more to say. Where he said, actually, if you use Caliber, you can do the conversions pretty simply. In fact, I think you can do batch conversions. In fact, I just did several Plucker ebooks talk about a blast from the past to EPUB. They were from 2010, so most of them are outdated. For your daughter, a fire tab would probably be fine. For my old eyes, I wanted e-ink and the ability to do a little bit larger fonts. But as I recall, I'm in the same age range as Moss. For me, the text-to-speech is becoming one of my favorite features of the pocketbook because I can fire up the Bluetooth and have it read to me while I'm cooking or wander around Costco or whatever. Well, for me, I like e-ink myself, but I haven't been able to uh, justify shelling out for one. I am using a fire tablet. There are some older e-ink Kindles that um, are still pretty good, but uh, they get harder and harder to um, put books on from Amazon because they like to block that type of thing. But um, I had responded, uh, yeah, I use Calibre to batch convert all of them, and it turned out pretty good. Uh, they are all from when I was using my PDA, the Dell Axiom X51V, on a regular basis, so sometime before or around 2010. Um, I use voice aloud for my books that I cannot find in audio, but I do it on my phone. Examples, the Garrett PI files and the Aubrey Knight series. Um, there are also some audio books that are just poorly read or of terrible quality, and I just prefer the straight text aloud. Um, and I also want to mention that, yeah, my, I, I just looked it up on my caliber library and there's 12,213 separate books on there. But I think the conversion and everything else, I only ended up with something like 8,000 in um, uh, audiobook shelf. But I do like it that it's made my entire library accessible without having to put it all on my phone. Well, being the Luddite in this group, I am the person that likes to read to people, not be read to by someone recorded it a long time ago. I do have several friends, including my wife. Uh, that I read to on a regular basis, and I'd rather have the text. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, if you're, I, if, you, if, if, if you're interested, um, it's all on my audio bookshelf, and I know you, you have access, and you can just click up there and go from books to ebooks, and you'll see the entire library. Okay. So, Zen Floater 2 writes, I'm an older developer, started coding in 1966 on Fortran for Raytheon. 
I suppose I would have to agree that most people don't give one shit about using snaps versus Debian on files on Ubuntu. So in that spirit, I'm using a Chromebook. I run OpenBSD for my server at home and use Slackware and Triskwell and sometimes Devuan and Fedora and even have Linux Mint on one of my machines. But I now have four Chromebooks and feel that a Chromebook is a better alternative to Ubuntu if you want updated apps. I've written proprietary software all my life and am lost in an SAP. I also drive a truck for a living now in my retirement and love to piss off brokers. I personally don't hate you people or Mintcast as a podcast. See, I've listened to TLLTS since the beginning and have listened to Dan Wasco bitch about Kobol for at least 20 years, and I'm just sick of his bitching. Just sick of it. Dan was one of the last Slackware users, and now he's using Ubuntu servers and Macs for his main driver. He's like Doc Searles in that they are all using Mac OS X now, and they bitch at us for helping develop MicroFocus Kobol for the cloud. Jeez. I'm also a member of the FSF and support OpenBSD with cash money. I love both projects, which makes me some kind of trans-freedom person, LOL. Google has promised to support my Chromebook now for eight years. Eight years! That's longer than Alma Linux and RHEL has support. The older you get, the higher the walls become. X11 is being purged in favor of Wayland. Disappointments there. System D just sucks. I can remember when Pat on TLLTS was bitching about having to use Pulse Audio. Pat felt also was enough. We all have complaints. At least with Chrome OS, I don't have to vroom with anything anymore. But they have absolutely no GTK2 support in this thing. So anything you use, Audacious in the Winamp interface gets stuck to the center of the screen like split loogies hanging from some elementary school bathroom ceiling. Slackware Triskwell for my Linux needs, but I find myself right here in the Chrome OS most of the time as it's just dependable and light and has extremely long battery life and everything is up to date and modern. Hard to beat. Signed, Charlie. There is a lot to unpack here with a lot of really cool stuff going on, but um, I had responded. Um, we have a guest lined up for the next show, but I think we would all love having you on as a guest or a host if you have the time. Bill might even ask you to do uh, 3FT. Um, I would love to discuss old Raytheon with you, and sounds like you and Moss would get along talking about OSs, and we would love to hear more about your opinion in regards to Chromebooks. Like I said, there's a lot to unpack here of just epic coolness. I mean, working for Raytheon, writing in Fortran, OpenBSD. And, and sounds like a grumpy old man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'd love to talk to this guy more. And he did have a response. And he responded, I appreciate it, Joe, but I can't commit to any kind of schedule, unfortunately, with my life. I will make an HPR episode at odd hours of the early morning sometimes when I have time. But typically, I'm driving somewhere during the daytime and just can't do this. But I also wanted to say the same thing you hear often on Destination Linux in that typically the laptop hardware you find on Dell and Lenovo is adequate, but not as brilliant as any of my four Chromebooks. The screens on these things are much better and easier to read, and the microphone they build into them is high quality. Good sound, too. I have to admit, Joe, that I'm coming back to these Chromebooks over my other laptops, mainly because of their brilliant hardware and exceptional battery life and just outstanding Wi-Fi. So here's what I do. I have a Think Penguin laptop with Triskwell on it, and I have Easy Tether installed, and I hook that laptop into my Android phone's internet using Easy Tether. Then I hit the hotspot button on Triskwell and log this Chromebook into that, and I get commercial bandwidth on my Chromebook. <laughs> I keep thinking that the stupid bastards at Google will give us a better bandwidth alternative on the Pixel 5G phones, but I don't know that they actually did yet. They should. 
But until I'm sure they're going to treat Chromebooks with the same bandwidth, like treating their Android to the cell tower bandwidth, I will keep doing what I've been doing and use truck stop Wi-Fi at other times. The Chromebooks all simply outperform my other laptops when using truck stop Wi-Fi. It's so great to be able to take a small Chromebook into a restaurant with me and use the internet from their Wi-Fi using a Chromebook. Battery life is often in excess of 10 hours, you know. I should make a program where I take a Pi 400 and put Alma Linux on it, load the easy tether driver on it, and permanently turn on the Wi-Fi using System D and just use the Pi as an interface modem for my purpose interface to sell bandwidth. That would be a good thing for us all to have. Then I could cut my stuff down to a Pi, a cell phone, and a Chromebook. Signed, Charlie. Truck then, stop Wi-Fi. As long as you have a VPN and it's solid, then I'm 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 then I'm okay with using public Wi-Fi. Well, but, imagine a router that gets like roughly three thousand people connected to it a day that never gets restarted. And imagine the kind of performance you'd get out of that. And, I hear you. Uh, yeah. I just never now, well, use it. You never use it at all? I, very seldom. It has to be somewhere where it's, there's a few places that are known for working really well. Most of the time I just tether off of my Android phone. And I'm surprised you haven't set up something to like de-auth everybody that isn't you. Um, <laughs> there's things you can do. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. But it's it's just not that great. I mean, well, it's not built for people like me anyway. It's power for, users. Yeah, it's built for people that just want to do basic things. And most of the time, I get. I mean, the new Verizon plans, I get twenty five gigs a month uh, hotspot, and that's well. His his method gets around that because you know with your Android phone. Yeah. Um, you usually get unlimited, not yeah. 25 gig, not anything like that. You get unlimited as long as you're not tethering. And his easy tether method is a way that's supposed to get around that. And I do discuss that. I've not tried response. that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, there are some catch-alls there that end up being a problem. And I had responded, that does sound like an awesome setup. I've been a big fan of easy tether in the past, but I've found that T-Mobile can detect it and slow down the connection to tethered speeds. Uh, maybe that has changed since the last time I tried it. Uh, I'm glad to hear how useful Chromebooks are. And if you find yourself with some free time on one of these uh, Saturday afternoons, jump on the Discord while we are on and maybe talk about it there. Uh, it's free form and whoever jumps in can talk. Uh, the Pi 400 build as a dedicated easy tethered WAN LAN setup sounds like it would be fun to do and super useful. I'd love to talk about the setup and the scripting that would need to be done to make it work properly and maybe bounce some ideas back and forth. Mobile travel networking is one of my favorite topics, and I have done some interesting things with fuse mounts and scripting auto connects based on network status. Plus, I know the whole team would be interested in talking more about old school development and Raytheon. And the main reason I personally like Dell systems is most of them are lower cost, and I have yet to find one that has trouble running Linux, from tablets to XPS 13s. Not the greatest quality devices, but they are workhorses that are easy to keep running and were built with repairability in mind for most of them. Easy to tear down, repair, and put back together. And I do, you know, want to add a couple of things there. I'm sure that there are exceptions when it comes to, like, Dell. And I'm also quite certain that the screens on Chromebooks are better. But this just for general workhorse, low costs, and and getting it in, getting it 
up and running with Linux and out doing whatever you want. They are perfect. And, um, well, from my experience. And then, you know, um, System D, if you said that you didn't like System D, so I've set up scripts within System D to do things with networking when you're expecting the network to drop and pick back up randomly. So I'd love to have that conversation. I'd love even more to do it on the show, but um, I understand time constraints as well. What's your hardware story, Danny? What, what, What stuff are you running? Um, nothing particularly interesting at the moment. I have, um, a mini desktop that's like a NUC based, uh, desktop that's from Laptop with Linux. They're one of the vendors that you can buy elementary OS pre-installed with. So that's my main desktop that I use. Um, and the laptop that I have, uh, is a Lenovo, uh, Yoga. Uh, I think it's a 900. I don't remember. Um, I've had it for like a long time, but I got it because it's um, it's like a two in one convertible. So it has the touch screen and you can like flip the keyboard away and stuff like that. So I I have devices that I've gotten to do specific types of development things with. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Got another letter here. We do. We have Brad Alexander. I guess. Hey guys, happy new year. Just finished episode 403 and had a couple of topics. You don't have to read it on the show since it is turning a little bit ranty. Guess I wouldn't be an ideal host on Mintcast, huh? Big smiley face. You shouldn't say things like that. You might get an invitation. Oh, he got an invitation. (laughs) First, I got all sorts of jazz for audio bookshelf until I looked at it and realized it was a Docker only. From my little experience at work, I tend to loathe Docker and how it makes a mess of your file systems with its accumulating thousands or tens of thousands of overlays that accumulate over time, that it rarely gets updated, and so forth. Plus, I have converted my home network to FreeBSD, so I was going to stand it up in a jail. Insert sad trombone. Well done. (laughs) The second thing, and hopefully I don't sound too Debbie Downer, but flat packs irritate the crap out of me. Weren't the flat pack snap and app image package formats created because of the competition between Deb and RPM and so forth? But Red Hat threw their weight behind snap and Ubuntu behind flat pack and so forth. I think backwards there. Yep. A little backwards. Yeah. Uh, Fedora uses flat pack and Ubuntu uses snap. So anyhow, so we have a different arms race, except these package formats that each installs the way I understand it. Each and every library that the app in question needs, even if it's installed many other times. Plus, I had to install Firefox on a, on an Ubuntu 22.04 box, and the only way it would install was via Flatpak. I was never able to upgrade it. Luckily, I found a page that told me how to install via Deb, and it has been happily updating ever since. All right. Pause right there, Moss. I can already see the look on Danny's face. Danny wants to say something. Yeah, I mean, it's only AppImage does that. That's the only one. Like Snap and Flatpak both have a concept of runtimes. And since Flatpak uses OS tree, it actually does file system level deduplication too. Yep. Okay. Honestly, this is part of the reason I went to FreeBSD. The main part is SystemD and its general brokenness, and the fact that it has caused Linux to diverge from a traditional Unix-like OS more toward the one-thing-to-rule-them-allness of Windows. Pottering once said that they wanted SystemD to, quote, own everything between the kernel and the application layer, end quote. But there are a few recent developments that have really turned me off of Linux, and I have been doing it for the better part of 30 years, 
you all mentioned ZFS and snapshots and how ZFS on boot is unnecessary. One of the things that I truly treasure about ZFS boot environments is the ability to completely roll back if an upgrade goes sideways. I have had it save my bacon on more than one occasion. I actually had a case on one of my TrueNAS boxes at work where I did an upgrade and could no longer open my storage pool. I was able to roll back to the previous release, get the storage online, and then figure out that the new version no longer supported the driver for the storage, an ancient card. Now, even before I do a package upgrade, equivalent to an apt upgrade, I create a before upgrade hyphen date boot environment so that I can roll back even if, say, an updated NVIDIA driver doesn't work. Anyway, I've ranted long enough. Have a good one, B. Um, I, I, I gave a short response to this. Um my first response was, um, yes, you would be perfect as a host on the show. Also, uh, not using the Docker image for audio bookshelf. I'm not, I'm not using the Docker image for audio bookshelf. And then I gave the link to the, um, how to install the deb. So it's not the flat pack. It, it's not the Docker image. It is just the straight up deb. You pull in the deb and you install it. And yeah, I think what they were saying about using uh, ZFS for snapshots before and after install is interesting because it seems like um, kind of the the mainstream vibe that that I'm picking up from a lot of the the distro makers is that we want to go more towards atomic upgrades. Um, so that would just be part of like how your package manager works. Like for example, Vanilla OS that uses uh, AB root kind of does that right now where you have an atomic upgrade um, between those two things. And if something goes wrong, it'll just roll back to the, to the other snapshot. So I think that that's kind of the, the future of updates is we'll get these uh, like Delta, you know, updated kind of images, and then you won't have to make your own snapshots. It'll all just be part of how updates work. Right. I'm not sure it was fair to say that we said that snapshotting wasn't necessary too. My my whole point was that if it's not going to be in the kernel, then uh, it's probably not as reliable as people probably think it is as far as having on your root, you know. Um it it's going to work fine with things like Ubuntu and that, but um we've got butterfs for that to a lesser extent, I suppose. I can see I can see the uh benefit of it but the the licensing is just always going to be an issue, I think. I mean, I've got ZFS everywhere, you know. All that being said, but it's it just for me, it's just a different purpose. Um, BSD though, now that's interesting, and I, you know, the system D hate <laughs> that seems to seems to be a lot of that in this interaction here. You know, I'm not sure where I know how where it came from in the beginning. I'm not sure where it comes from now. Uh, because it it has it solved a lot of problems and simplified a lot of things. So, and the Docker thing, what somebody yeah, explained? It, it seemed funny to me that both of our writers today were anti System D, and I've seen the hatred going the other direction. That, uh, that people don't people want to move more used to it. Now. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it was all the vogue in the beginning, wasn't it, to be against it because it was it kind of flew in the face of the Unix philosophy i suppose if you took everything at all of the messaging at face value but i think ideas need to evolve with with the technology so now you were saying about docker well the, the, uh, somebody needs to explain to me what he's talking about about the uh 
how darker what what did he say uh things get um overwritten or no uh, okay docker is like it, it's the easiest way i've ever found to explain it is actually completely incorrect it's miniature vming think of it that way but yeah i mean i've got like a dozen docker images running i'm just right. trying to understand um, what he's <laughs> right the idea is is that um they don't share libraries okay so you're rewriting libraries and rewriting libraries. So if you have 10 Docker images and they all use the same libraries, then you're going to have those libraries written 10 times. Now, with Docker in particular, that's not really true because it uses um, the kernel layer, and so it shares all that. And that okay. was the same thing with um, um, flat packs and everything else, the only exception being app image, which really is completely isolated from everything else. And so all the libraries are self-contained, and every app image you have, if it it doesn't share libraries with other yeah. applications. And, well, first off, with Flatpak and Snap, it's not really a reality, but... it's That's what we were saying. Yeah. Um, with In the case of Docker, I mean, you know, what's the argument here that we're using up more file space? Um, yeah, uh, my <laughs> argument there would be file space is a whole lot cheaper now than it well, was. Yeah, I mean, we're living... In, I, most computers are coming out of Walmart with a terabyte and what are we talking, you know, these libraries that, that they're complaining are getting duplicated. Um, how much space are we talking here? A few megabytes here and there, you know, I mean, is that really a problem or is that just something that irritates people? Because the problem that's being solved in my mind outweighs any problem of, of increased disk space. I mean, it, it, uh, it solves the problem of compatibility because it really you've got two choices if you want to be able to to well, you've got all these distributions you want to be able to to uh support all these things that have all these different tool chains all these different libraries that they depend on you can either do windows style backward compatibility all the way back to the 80s or you can create a, a containerized system to where these uh, applications can come with their own runtimes and their own tool chains, you know. And that was a great thing about Docker when it first started, because it was one of the first ones to actually take that mindset. Uh, right. But he is right in one portion of that where he talks about um, Docker images not updating very often. Yeah. And essentially, they don't update at all. And if you want to update a Docker image, what you have to do is delete said Docker image and then reinstall it and then have all your settings stored um, outside of the Docker image and then have them re well saved in the same location and pointed to again. And then hopefully all the settings work with the new version that worked with the old version. And I use so there, there, there's a kind of a reason I moved away from Docker when Flatpak app image and everything else started working a little bit better. So. I use a project called Watchtower that uh, watches my Docker images and then looks for updates from Docker Hub. And then elegantly, every time I come home and start this thing up, it, you know, I've, I've got it set up to tell me what changes have been made. And it will rather elegantly upgrade those uh, Docker images. Now, I've got to go in and, you know, occasionally and do a prune, you know to uh, get rid of the, the cruft and that. But so far, and it's been running for about two years now, so far that's been running rather well. 
So once you've got these things set up, if they're set up right, there is there is an there is options for keeping it up to date. Um, but I'm so I'm glad that we have on this thing, Bill. Yeah, let's do that because <laughs> I guess I do have other things in life. Um, so that's uh, that's it for the vibrations from the ether. Um, moving on to housekeeping and announcements. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mintcast. If you see something you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us an email at a email, an email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube, post at the Mintcast subreddit, chat with us on Telegram and Discord, or post directly at mintcast.org. Next next episode will be two PM US Central Time on Sunday, March fifth, twenty twenty three, and there's a link to get that converted to your time zone in the show notes. Next roundtable live stream will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Saturday, February 25th, 2023. And there's a link in the show notes to get that converted to your time zone. Live stream information is at mintcast.org slash live stream. Moving on to the wrap up. Joe, where can we find you at? Look, if you want to send us a meme mail, you should definitely send it to mintcast yeah. mintcast.org. <laughs> yeah. Just saying. Um, I'm on a couple other shows. If you like the sound of my voice, you can catch me on the, the Linux Link Tech Show, which is tllts.org. There's the Linux Lugcast, which you can find at linuxlugcast.com. Um, you can send me an email, jb at mintcast.org, or you can buy me a coffee on Kofi. The link's in the show notes. Moss? Well, you can hear me every week on Full Circle Weekly News. Every month on Distro Hoppers Digest, roughly. We do about 10 a year on average. Uh, my email is bardmoss at pm.me. You can catch me on Mastodon at zyvala at hosttux.social. And my other information can be found at itsmoss.com. Bill? Uh, you can email me, bill at mintcast.org. I'm bill underscore h on Discord. At wchauser3 at fostodon.org on Mastodon. I'm at wchauser3 on Twitter. And the same on Facebook. Also, check out my other shows, Linux OTC and uh, three, uh, three Fat Truckers. Danny, how about you? Where can we find you at? Yeah, if you're looking for uh, elementary and elementary OS related stuff, you could go to elementary.io. Uh, if you want to write an app and publish it in App Center, or if you've never written apps for a Linux-based operating system before and you want to learn how, uh, definitely go there and check out the develop link. Or if you want to get involved uh, with their open source community, there's a Get Involved page that details all the different ways that even if you're not a developer, you can contribute. And if you're looking for me personally, I have a like very small, unstyled page up at dannyrabbit.github.io that has links to all my socials and things like that. Right on. And again, I want to thank you for being on the show. Uh, before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Audio Freak, otherwise known as Rio, for our audio editing. Archive.org for hosting our audio files. Hobstar for our logo, InitRD for the animated Discord logo, Londoner for our time sync, Billhauser for running the Pi 400, which runs our website, website maintenance, and the Nextcloud server on which we host our show notes and raw audio, the Linux development team for the fine distro we love to talk about each fortnight, 
Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Mintcast.